Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to your Rattlecast number 178. So glad you could join me. Today's guest, A.E. Hines, is here. We'll be with him in about 10 minutes. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and I know you do too. So please do click the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. I might think you can do to help spread poetry around the internet would be greatly appreciated. I should also mention in the second hour, we're going to have a special guest, Ron Kirchie, is going to be back. Um, he's got a new book, I Dreamed I Was Emily Dickinson's Boyfriend. And um, he'll be here in about uh, an hour and 15 or so um, to read a couple poems and talk about that new book. He was the guest on Rattlecast number, oh, what was it, 47? And he also was in the interview in issue number 50, no, 48, I think. So, um, so Ron will be back talking about his new book. I'm looking forward to that as well. We're going to start out with today's um, Poets Respond poem, or Sunday's Poets Respond poem, I should say. And it was by Chris Kaiser. And um, it was about this article. Let me pull this up, if we can. It was about um, a think piece um, in um, NPR's Think Podcast about food waste. And um, this is what, what Chris Kaiser writes about it. Here, let me put this up on the screen. Um, he, Chris Kaiser says, uh, when I heard a piece on NPR's Think about food waste, I remembered an incident that happened to me when I thought I'd want to p- pursue restaurant management. It also jogged my memory of times I've come face to face with people devising creative ways to assuage their hunger when their income is below the poverty line. And, um, and here's the poem. I just loved the, um, I loved the, the way the rhyme worked in this poem, the, the casual way you read the poem like three times before you realize that it's it's rhyming, and um, a really wonderful use of that, and also an important subject too because we waste so much in this culture, and um, it's a good example of that. So here's Chris Kaiser reading his poem "Tenderness." Tenderness. The manager I'm shadowing tosses five steaming slices of fresh cut prime rib in the trash as calmly as tech bosses laying off 10,000 workers at a clip. I know he's memorized the thick binder of exacting rules. He wants to rule the world. His flopped ears and underbite, though, reminders he's more shih tzu than snarling Rottweiler. Nine ounces, he says, tossing the first slice each slice thereafter thrown on the ounce cue. Not ten, not eight, but nine, to be precise. His eyes lock with mine, smug with his coo. I imagine his sweet mother ignoring his skinned cats and other such cruel whoring. I then recalled helping some elderly, To say they reeked would be impolite. No cats, but cat food. A peculiarity. It almost tastes like tuna, ain't that right? I recalled seeing handwritten entries in rural homes to casserole squirrel. Dogless men bird-dogging squirrels up trees, hoping buckshot only went subdermal. The manager walks away, droning on, nine ounces of medium-rare beef, al jus, baked potato, sautéed onion, steak knife, dessert fork, lucky clover leaf. 
I think best to parboil squirrel, large size, with a glug of vinegar to tenderize. Once again, that was Sunday's poet, uh, Chris Kaiser, with his poem Tenderness. And a great, uh, I love the title too. There's a great, uh, like a, a double meaning in that title that works really well, Tenderness by Chris Kaiser. That is uh, Sunday's poem uh, from Rattle.com. If you'd like to share a news poem, of course, you can always go to rattle.com slash respond. Um, any poems about uh, written about news in the last week are uh, welcome. And so we want to you know, have poems be timely. And that's the way we do it with Poets Respond. So if you write poems um, about any current events, please do submit them there. I should say, too, at the end of this episode, there will be a uh, open line. So if you have any poems you'd like to share... Um, I'll give you a Zoom link in about an hour, and we will uh, share those. You can join us on the Zoom and share any poem you'd like about current events. You can share poems about um, that you've published recently, about the prompt that we have coming up. So anything you would like to share, hit us up on the open lines at the end of the episode. But right now we're going to take a quick break, and we're going to get back with uh, today's main guest, A.E. Hines. So hang, sit tight, and I will be right back. And we're back. Thanks so much for your patience. Like I mentioned, uh, today's guest is A.E. Hines. Uh, his debut collection, Any Dumb Animal, received honorable mention in the North Carolina Poetry Society's 2022 Brockman Campbell Book Contest and was the Vinci I finalist for the Eric Hoffer Book Award. His poems have been widely published in anthologies and literary journals, including more recently Rattle. Um, he was on Poetry Respond a couple weeks ago. Um, Alaska Quarterly Review, The Southern Review, Ninth Letter, which is one I haven't seen in a long time, but that's a beautiful literary magazine. Um, the Missouri Review, a whole bunch of others. He's currently pursuing his MFA in writing at Pacific University, which is something I want to talk about because it's the best um, writing program in the country, in my opinion. Uh, but here he is, uh, A.E. Hines. Hey, Earl, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you, Tim? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us again after I think it's like three weeks or so you were on <laughs> briefly, and then we found out you had this book, and, and I had I was just doing the uh, scheduling, so it was perfect timing. Um, yeah, your book I'm is... fresh back from the Pacific Residency since I last saw you, too. So. Yeah, perfect. Well, your book here is Any Dumb Animal, which is a, a wonderful book. Do you want to start us out with a poem so we get a feel of, of how it's going to sure. go? Let's start with the first poem in the book, which is um, Phone Call on page three. Years later, in college, drunk on cheap beer, I call home to tell my father he's a real son of a bitch. Tell him I hate him. Hated his dragging me to the floor from my bed, placing his atlas-like form over mine to hold me until I couldn't breathe. Hated how he force-marched me through the hardware store, squeezed my fingers, grinding the tiny bones until I surrendered in tears and gasping pleas for release. In this same keg-induced phone call, I tell him his only son is gay, like it's some kind of punishment. But he just sighs, long silence, the only condemnation I hear. I blame myself, he tells me. Wasn't hard enough on you. I failed. Two decades pass before I understand how. I sit in the office of a marriage counselor with another man who has diminished me for years, squeezed, grinded, pinned me down. I listen as he struggles to explain he really needed the affair and try as he might. He just can't, won't apologize for it. And that's the uh, first poem in the book, Phone Call, from Any Dumb Animal by A.E. Hines. There's, I believe, three phone call poems in the book, so take special note of that 
because that is going to be the uh, prompt for next week. We'll talk about that later. But um, but uh, so keep an eye on that. Keep remembering those the, how that poem worked in your head if you want to look at uh, for, for look ahead to the prompt poem. But it's a great example of the the style of poetry you write too, which is very straightforward and honest. And, um, and it's just sort of really personal storytelling about yourself and, and your relationships. Um, um, how, how did you come about becoming a poet? And, and why are you drawn to that style, I guess, is the first, the first question. Well, that's interesting because I'm, you know, I'm, I'll be 52 in a couple of weeks. And I, I only started writing poetry six or seven years ago. Oh, wow. And, um, I always fancied that I, I was always interested in writing from a young age, but I didn't go that route. I got an engineering degree out of college and and went into high tech, eventually went into finance. I did everything the opposite of poetry. Um, but I, I always had a desire to write and I always thought I was going to write fiction and, you know, tried and failed a few times, many times. Um, and then a few years ago, started working with mentors in the the Portland area where I lived for many years and and decided this was where I was going to plant my flag and focus on craft. And so I think the, the the narrative style of poetry sort of comes naturally to me. I tend to be more of a storyteller naturally. And so I think that's where that comes from. Yeah, really interesting. And was there a certain, I mean, I'm interested in, in what, you know, I guess at 40, 45 years old, I guess, or mm. so, um, to, to enter poetry, was there something, was there a certain poem or a certain book you read or a certain thing that you encountered that made you think that, that poetry was the way to tell these stories that you wanted to tell? I, you know, I was, I was a big reader of poetry. I was a big fan of a lot of poets. And, um, but I know I really, if you'd have told me 10 years ago that I would be writing poetry and I'd have my first book out, I would have told you you were insane. And so, which I think is beautiful for me personally, because it was just sort of this thing that I didn't even know I was yearning to do. Mm -hmm. But once I actually tried and once I really um, started realizing I could actually tell stories and, and in a way that was a more briefer way, you know, with more lyric, I, I, I decided that was for me. Mm -hmm. And, um, but no, if you do, and that may be actually the, you know, I've changed my life a few times career wise, for example. And I think that if, if I could plan it out, it wouldn't happen. I think some of these things, as much as I am a very meticulous and analytical person, I think I tend to just jump once the spirit moves me. Yeah. Well, I'm curious more about this because it's, um, it's something that doesn't come up a lot in the poets I talk to. Like, you know, most poets start, you know, there's sort of like a, a couple little, um, areas where they start. So a lot of people start when they're like at you know in elementary school, you know, writing and you know filling up notebooks when they're sort of lonely at home or, or in a rainy days, you know. And then some people are in like high school, they sort of have some pivot point, which is what be my story. There aren't a lot of poets. And actually, I was talking recently uh, for the spring issue of Rattle to uh, Frank Dulligan, an Irish mm -hmm. poet, who. Um, um, he sort of had a, I wouldn't call it a midlife crisis, I guess, but he was in, in finance and realized that like he was wasting his life. And so took up um, jujitsu and poetry to kind of get himself centered. And yeah. um, and that was around age 40 or so. And, and I wonder like, how, what have you noticed different about yourself? Like, has it, has it enriched you to be a poet? You know, what, what has, how has your life changed yeah. in the fact and the practice of writing poetry? Well, you know, it's it's interesting. I um and I guess just to kind of I guess I do have that one experience in seventh grade where the visiting writer came because of the arts council in the rural North Carolina. I wrote a poem and she wrote a big P on it. And uh, I was trying to figure out where in the A B C D E F grading scale P fell because that had to be pretty bad. Until she said, no, that means publish that. And I guess that was back in the back of my head, but I didn't get a lot of encouragement beyond that for many years. Um, I will say to your question, I I think that. 
Um, I write a lot about, I was raised in this incredibly sort of repressive evangelical um, community and family. And so I think I love when I, when I gave all that up, right. Moved past that came out of the closet, moved many, moved 3000 miles away from home. You know, I lost something. I lost something that I used to have, I think, through spiritual tradition and spiritual community. And one of the things I discovered with writing and poetry that is important to me as much as the art itself is the community, you know, that um, I've found. Um, you know, Andrea Hollander is a poet that I work with very closely in Portland. I, I refer to her as my poetry mother, <laughs> and she was instrumental in this book. And um, and so I I would you know I feel like I've found new family and new community through writing and poetry particularly that I don't think I would have found otherwise and that's the biggest surprise to me especially at middle age I don't think we meet, find that many new friends in middle age and I found quite a few. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I mean, I always think about, um, you know, I'm not, you know, I didn't grow up religious and I'm not religious now, but I always think of the one thing that, that I would, that, that you sort of get out of religion is that sense of community. Like, you know, we, you know, I have friends that are get the church every Sunday and Thursday night, you know, and, and they just have this sense of like camaraderie and community that I don't have any access for. And um, it's really cool to think of poetry as a replacement to that, because I think of it as a replacement for religion in general, just because they're sort mm -hmm. of poems or prayers um, written out to the universe in, in the, the mystery of what you don't understand and don't know. Um, how, how and I your, think yeah. process, sorry, I was going to say, I think the process of composition for me feels a little bit prayerful in that, you know, I don't really know exactly where those first lines come from. You know, I collect images in a book as I walk around through my my day, but ever, I still don't know when that first line is going to come, and then I'll be moved to write something, and that feels that feels spiritual to me. Yeah, for lack of a description. Mm -hmm. Yeah, how much do you think like your your spirituality has developed over time? Did you, you know, growing up in an evangelical household and, and community, um, did you lose it completely and then sort of replace it eventually with a new religion? What was your progression, you know, as far as spirituality goes? Well, that's interesting. I um I still write. I still can't quite get the Christian archetypes out of my um my writing. They show up a lot, and um, uh, to to some of my mentors' chagrin, I think I, I think part of that is because uh, now I play with them. Like I use them in a in you know sort of ironically more than not, but um but they're there, and I got them honest, and that's who I am. And over time, you know, I got very interested in Eastern philosophy. Um, but I wouldn't say I subscribed to any religion anymore. Mm -hmm. um, um, I was uh, I had the advantage of of uh, working with Shara McClellan, um recently, and she said something like, "You want to believe in God? I believe in the line," and um, and <laughs> and I, I sort of subscribe to that now. You know, sort of the music and the, the of, of writing and language. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I would say I mean I'm a, I'm a meditator, um, and I read a lot of spiritual um, writings, mostly from Eastern philosophies and Buddhism, but I wouldn't describe myself as a religious person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, same here. Um, do you want to, uh, let's keep moving on with the poem. Do you want to do the next poem? Yeah, let's read, um, let's look at my father's son, which is on page seven. If my father was ever tender, I don't remember. By the time I could forge memories, he'd grown hard, cold, like the hood of his Pontiac, on a January morning. Surely he must have changed my diaper or offered me a bottle when my mother's milk ran dry. Held me when I cried. Biology has blessed us with the strongest recollection for what to avoid. So I don't know if he ever lifted my little body to the sky or carried me on his shoulders. Instead, I'm left with random sensations 
the burn of the electric fence on my uncle's farm, how my father told me to grab hold of the naked wire so that I might remember, he said, so that I could learn. I can still make out my uncle's orchard, the sun glinting off the silver leaves, but not the first time I crushed a grape between my teeth or tasted the juices straight from my fingers. Perhaps there's simply too much good to remember, too little space in our brains to hold both the good and bad. When I was 16, overtaken by desire, I first understood what my father thought of me. He said the saddest son of a bitch he ever knew lived out in the woods with a daughter who longed to be a son and a son who chased every boy in town. It was the same year he left our family the year I discovered in his belongings a picture he had taken of me when I was four. All cherub smile, the sun ablaze in my hair, a photo he must have treasured since he said he'd kill me before he let me have it. And that was my Which is really something when you think about it. The memory of the boy he had seen through the lens so much better than the real thing standing right there before him. Oops, sorry about that. That was my father's son uh, from uh, the book Any Dumb Animal, recently out by A.E. Hines. Um, and that's the, the central topic in the book, is is the relationship um, you know, with your father and, and coming out and, and him trying to mold you into somebody who you weren't at all, um, you know, very harshly, of course. I don't know if we'll read the swimming poems. I, I assume. I didn't look at the list. But, um, but those are some powerful poems, too. Um, and, and then the way I've been thinking a lot too about the way that um, that your early relationships sort of reverberate through life, and you kind of can't shake them, you know. And so that comes up as a theme in the book too, um, with the the dissolving of your marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, how um, it's one of those books where you really think about the people in it, the characters. Have you have you um, have they read the book? Do they have any reaction to it? Are they so far away from your life now that, that they haven't? You, you know, it's interesting. My, I, I explore sort of all the relationships with the men in my life, I feel like, in this book. And so I have a son who's now almost 20, and I've pushed the book at his way. He's not read it. Um, and no, I'm pretty sure that um, there would be pitchforks and um, burning crosses on the front yard if I if my family gets hold of this book. But they might. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's the thought that I had. Yeah, um, <laughs> is that is that something that you like worry about? I mean, well, I mean, I I've thought it, well, I do worry about being kind and being fair. I mean, even in that my father son poem, I felt bad reading the two poems that we just read back to back. It's like, oh my poor father, you know. I the 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 second poem that my father's son poem it does hold out the possibility that i don't remember good things right i'm kind of intrigued one of my obsessions is 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 memory and the fact that none of us really have an accurate perception of anything going on at any time Mm -hmm. um so i'd like to think that even the things that are tough are compassionate i'm very careful with my son you know when i try to write things about him but i feel like the stories of family the stories you when you were the child really are yours Mm -hmm. and you're entitled to share them um I can't remember what writer said you need to write like everyone you've ever known, including yourself, is dead. Um, but I've tried to live by that because I want it to be true as well. Yeah, the idea of memory is so interesting too. That that we you know we we write over and over and over our memories until we don't we can't be sure of what they are anymore. Um, and in the process right. of writing, did you did a lot of new memories come up that you hadn't thought of in a long time? Oh yeah, oh yeah. I mean, what's funny is when you assemble a book. Um, 
you know, and I didn't set out to write a book. I just said, I'll try to write as many poems as I could as I was starting out. And as you start to put them together, you start to see these gaps and then you start asking questions. You're like, well, when did that happen? A lot of those swimming poems came from some of those various memories of different different occasions. And pretty soon, you know, drowning becomes sort of an overriding theme in the book, both literally and more metaphorically. Um, and so some of those poems came as a result of just seeing the other poems come to fruition. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, let's keep the poems moving. Let's hear another one. Let's look at language immersion, which is uh, on page 20. It sounds like I'm calling from a hymnal, doesn't it? <laughs> language immersion. In the company of my thoughts, I feel more alone than ever before. But after two weeks, new words at last glimmer in the mind like freshly minted coins. Others appear or don't as they please, rise up from the ether, present themselves like tattered pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. I call home and my Spanish speaking lover says it takes time to fit them together, to twist my tongue around his syllables. When I try, each time open my mouth, I imagine he hears a donkey braying at the sky. Still, I try, and somehow we both understand. Strange how words now don't seem so important when in another life I lived with a man for whom they were everything, who hoarded them like an arsenal. For 20 years, he taught me to sharpen and hurl them like circus daggers. Every night, they flew from our lips like machine gun fire, and now armed with two languages, my mouth so often an empty chamber, I have neither the need nor desire to reload. That was language immersion uh, from any dumb animal. And to go back to that idea of um, the, the way that we repeat patterns, I mean, there, there's so much in this book that, that sort of, I don't know, it feels... Like, um, you know, relate, relates to my life, too. I mean, I have a similar kind of relationship with my dad. I've been estranged from him from, for 25 years. And it's the same kind of thing when I was a kid trying to understand that I was different than the way he would always, you know, be like, all oh, your books, you college boys don't know anything about the streets, you know, that kind of that kind of thing. And then for a while trying to like make me do like work on the Harley, you know, <laughs> and uh, work at the gun store. And, uh, and, um, you know, and then finally just kind of giving up and then kicking me out eventually when I was old enough to not, you know, die by being kicked out. And, um, I don't know. And, and so, and then we like pick up on the, the way that we grew up too. And, and then, and then keep living that out for some reason, right. which is so, so right. interesting to me, which is something that it took a lot longer in life to realize that the same patterns are coming through. Yeah, it is interesting as a gay man to realize that even gay men marry their fathers. Yeah, <laughs> at least the first time. Uh -huh. You know, I'm very happily remarried now, and and uh, you know, I think you learn something the first time around. Yeah, and, and so so what was like? How much did you learn in the process of writing the book? Was the the question I was getting to? Was it sort of a process of discovery, or was it like you already had come to terms with these things and were putting it down on paper for the first time? Um, I think. Um, there's gifts that show up, you know, like a lot of the, the, you know, first lines of poems usually come to me, scenes or circumstances usually come to me, but then uh, I sort of don't know exactly where they're going to go. Mm -hmm. And, um, and they may go through lots of iterations. Sometimes they come and they're done. And then, you know, there's a poem we're going to read later that, you know, I probably had 40 drafts of, um, before it found its place and what it was about. 
And so, um, yeah, so no, I, I mean, you know, I don't think writing is necessarily meant to be therapy, but in this case, it can be in that you can sometimes discover perspective that you didn't know you had or pattern, see patterns that you didn't know you had. And I'm sure, you know, when I talk to nonfiction writers who write memoir, right, they, they talk a lot about that. So, um, you know, we also talk about, you know, not every single poem where the I is the speaker means that's, you know, you, but it, it tends to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely tends to be. And um, can you say more about that? Do you find yourself writing poems? Because it is very autobiographical, this book, and, and it, in, the, in the kind of way where it's, it's almost impossible to divorce that the right. idea from the book. Like I couldn't read an I in this book without thinking it's you, but, but is it the case where it's not, and some of the poems are more than others. And how far do you let yourself sort of swim, no pun intended away from, um, of that I that that's yourself. I kind of felt like I, once I started assembling the book, I thought I had boxed myself in a bit with the autobiography of it. And so I tried to be loyal to that because it just felt like it would be confusing mm -hmm. if it diverged. Um, and, and again, I was really finding my way as a poet, still I am. And so I was, I, I, that felt like what I could pull off at mm -hmm. that point. Now, if you look at what I'm writing now, I'm trying to write more where the eye might, you know, I may hide in a persona. It's still, you know, it's still ultimately what is the speaker saying or what is the poet really, you know, every character in the poem is the poet, right? Mm -hmm. In some regard. Yeah. So um, I, I think that, you know, that first, but this book, you know, was very much about the, the, the I being the self and, 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 and cobbling together how these various threads of these particular relationships had informed a life. You know, this was one reflection of sort of self in the universal sense. Right. But, you know, now I'm challenging myself to sort of, you know, bury perspective and um, you know, you don't necessarily want to have to be the hero in every poem and it's not very true if you end up that way. And so I'm trying to be, I'm trying to dig deeper so that that's not really as a big of a, uh, pitfall, if you will. Yeah, that's if a great. Yeah, that's a great line. Uh, you know, you're not supposed to be the hero in every poem, and and, and it's true. Um, the the thing I was thinking about before um, was, you know, given that this is the kind of thing that when we read poems that are so honest and personal like that, and then we sort of see parts of our own lives in there, there's that sort of sense of connection and community actually that that builds from just hearing you know someone else's story being similar to their own, and things that we don't talk about very often. Um, how much are you aware of that? Like, like, what is the purpose when you sit down to write poems like this? Were you writing just to, to explore your own history and how it relates to the present? Or were you also thinking about how people would receive it and, um, and, and having some, you know, somebody to, to feel the same emotions with? Yeah, I, I, I'm very sensitive to, um, <laughs> we're talking about religion again there, but the grace of God, like I survived, right, kind of thing, because I had a tough upbringing, and then it, it didn't get much better growing up and coming out, you know, during the um, late 80s, early 90s um, in the rural South, and I sort of feel, for whatever worse, I feel sort of um, humbled by that in such a way that if anything in my story is of use, or if anything in from my perspective in some of those times as a young person is of use to young people now, because it is not necessarily, you know, we're kind of going the other way right now in some regards. Um, and so I think it's really important. I mean, one of the things I'm very proud of is this book, some friends challenged us to use the pre-sales of the book to raise money for the Trevor Project. And we did, we raised several thousand dollars for the Trevor Project, which for folks that don't know is a, a nonprofit organization that that essentially helps prevent suicide among LGBTQ um, plus youth. Mm -hmm. And um, that, to me, part of that, this book, there's just no way for me to divorce from myself sort of this survival part of the book that I didn't really appreciate living 
But looking back and assembling the poems that are in there, I did appreciate it a lot more and was very grateful and thankful for everyone who actually threw me a lifeline along the way. And um, hopefully that pays that forward for anybody who can take any value from that. You know, we're not alone. None of us are alone. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, Let's uh, keep going with the poems. Uh, What do you want to read next? Oh, my goodness. Well, let's uh, well, you mentioned drowning. So let's let's go there. Um, Let's go to. uh, how we learn, which is where the title of the book comes from, and that's in on page five. How we learn. Having nearly drowned as a child, having been terrified to leave the confines of dry land, I already knew a thing or two about avoiding the obvious dangers. When my father understood my fear, he became fond of tossing me into the deep end of pools, and I became adept at hiding whenever, wherever, water was near. When I am 10, he catches me under a pop-up canopy at my uncle's lake house and drags me by one arm along the pier, my feet catching in the gaps, bouncing against each plank, tells me any dumb animal can learn. Again, he sends my body sailing. Again, I bob and choke. Nothing in my ears but the terrifying roar of my own muffled screams. My mother, just out of reach, my non-swimming apoplectic mother, runs back and forth along the pier, curses my father, yells for my uncle, her hands waving up and down like the wings of a giant bird, but flightless. And I understand in that moment There is nothing, nothing at all she can do. I think she must be waving goodbye. And that was How We Learn. Um, The title is drawn from that poem, Any Dumb Animal by A.E. Hines uh, from Main Street Rag Press. Uh, Beautiful cover, too. Um, The the subtlety of that is really nice. Uh, Yeah. Um, Can you you say anything about... I searched long and hard for that. Yeah, what was it like looking for the cover? Um, That was tough, man. That was tough. I mean, you know, know, the the editor was very kind to let me have input on the cover. And I I knew I wanted some image that captured, um, well, this this sense of uh, almost willful drowning, if you will, like, you know, standing beneath the water, stuck beneath the water. And that image is that is it just kind of it just when I saw it, it leapt out at me. I was like, that's that's the image. It's exactly sort of the the theme, the sort of, you know, unifying theme in the book. Yeah. And, and that drowning poem, um, you know, it comes up later. I don't know if we want to spoil you know, that the ending um, of it, but there's some there's a sense of like. I don't, you mentioned having trying to have sort of empathy for your father and other people in your life, even when they've done wrong, you know. And and do, what do you think that the source of that behavior is? Do you, do you think there's something of 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 him or of himself that he saw in you that he was trying to sort of beat out of you? Um, is that yeah a part yeah. of what was going on? Yeah, I even think in the first poem, the phone call poem, when I call him and you know confront him drunk in high, in college, I I think he. And this is me being, you know, is with distance and time, you know, I'm sure he thought he was trying to actually be a good father. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think now, I mean, my father and I are, are I, I assume, permanently strange. I, I assume he's still alive. I haven't spoken to him in over 20 years um, for reasons that also show up in other phone call poems, because the phone calls become important because we did over time have just this phone call 
relationship over the years. But so, no, I actually think that we, you know, I really truly do believe that, I mean, we make mistakes and we can try to own them, right? And we can try to repair them, all of us. Um, I, you know, certainly having a kid, raising a kid, I talk about this in different poems in the book too, is like, you know, I could hear my, sometimes hear my father's voice in my voice. I just made sure he never ended up in my hands. Um, and maybe that's where I was able to make some improvement, hopefully. But uh, yeah, no, my sense is we all do the best we can do. I mean, it doesn't excuse bad behavior, but I think most people are generally trying to do the best they can do with what they've got and with how they were raised at the time. Yeah, I mean, it just it reminds me of the uh, the Philip Larkin poem. You know, they fuck us up, your mom and dad, and then, they do. Know, because their parents did too. And there's I, just this cycle of um, of doing that. And you know, I think my my dad's father was worse than him. And so right. you know, and so you try to be better than your own. Um, yeah, yeah. Let's talk about your writing process a little bit because the poems are striking in their sort of their direct authenticity. And I wonder how much like revision goes into it. How much, um, what is your process like when you sit down to write a poem? How do you know what you're going to be writing about? And then, and then how much goes into crafting it? Or is it sort of a, you know, there's, cause there's a sort of confessional strain. We like to imagine that, you know, poems just are kind of come flooding out when they feel like that. How is it, what's your writing process like? Well, so it's, you know, it's varied. And, you know, it's funny when you dump this much autobiography into a book, then you ask yourself, my husband, actually, my, my current husband, he said to me, he said, so what do you say the first book is really about? I'm like, well, it's kind of about my relationship with my mom and my dad and my son and my ex-husband and marrying you. And he's like, what will the second book be about? I'm like, it'll probably be about relationship with my mom and my dad. And, you know, <laughs> <laughs> so, but when you do kind of have that big dump, you know, of autobiography, you try to at least try to write away from it. And then what I found is you just you don't get to choose. So there is a certain amount of mystery to sort of like what comes and then you have to be true to that and write that. So my process is varied. I try to get up and write every day. I try to write. There are days when I wake up and the first thing I want to do is write. And there's, it's easy. I just pick an image. Like I said, I keep a notebook of images and thoughts and ideas and just anything that comes to me. Lines. A lot of times the first line of a poem is what is the only thing left in the poem usually that when I started, mm -hmm. first line tends to persist. And then it's writing to the end. It's the, the hard part, you know, figuring out how to get out and of the poem. And I, um, some poems, they go through one or two short, you know, tightening revision, make them sing a little better. Other poems, you know, I'll let you know. I, they're still, <laughs> they're still, they're still, you know, on the drawing board. And, um, you know, I am blessed to have, you know, people that I care about that, that I trust to read the work when I've lose perspective. And that helps sometimes because they'll call me on my bullshit and say, I think you're, you know, why'd you use second person here when everybody knows it's you? Or, mm. you know, I think you're kind of avoiding in the center of this, you know, something, some culpability. And you need those kind of readers, right, to, to call you on that. So that's a big part of my writing process is just having people call me on bullshit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah. Um, there's a question here from Nate Jacob over on uh, Facebook, which relates to the, the how, uh, how we learn poem, which um, he says, um, the present tense and how we learn really adds to the reality of the story. So stark was the present tense an intentional choice. And is that the kind of thing that you think about as you're writing is, is what I'm wondering. Is that or is it something that comes after the fact and you say this should be better in this tense, you know? Yeah, I, that's really interesting question, because I think if I, I don't. If I got the poem right, if I remember how it starts, I think it might start in past tense and then shifts in stanza two or three um, to present tense. And 
And I remember doing that in revision on purpose because I wanted to create, once I had written the first couple of drafts, I realized that you didn't really, I wanted the reader to sort of go there with me in that sense of drowning. And I realized putting it in the present tense had a, a higher likelihood of creating that urgency. But it didn't start that way. It all was in past tense. Sometimes I question kind of mixing the tense, but I, you know, pull it off a few times and I think it can be useful that way. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't even notice, but it's true. We're looking at it on the screen right now. And, it, you know, having nearly drowned as a child, having been terrified to leave the confines of dry land, I already knew a thing or two. So it's the past tense there. It also uh, lets you it lets you um, convey to the reader that you are uh, an adult looking backwards through the lens of adulthood to see this moment so that you can you can just attribute other feelings to an adult that you might not attribute to a I think I was 10 in that poem if I recall. <laughs> yeah. And and so that's an interesting thing where um a lot of times you would say um you know if you were in a workshop people would say oh the tense change you got to correct the tense and make it consistent and they wouldn't let you get away with that. Um did you ever have that poem workshop and did that come up? Um that's the thing that I that I always worry about. And I mentioned already that you're at Pacific University that MFA program I think is the best one. There's so many great poets that teach there. It's a low res thing and just so many great poets come out of it. Um yeah. but is that something that you workshopped and then and then I don't know there's that that sense that like you have to both learn how to workshop poems but also learn how to resist the bad advice that a group of people like a committee of people will always give you. Yeah. Well, and then you have to sort of you know the committee's going to be filled with different different backgrounds, different taste levels, different aesthetics. And so I would say I'm getting better at that. I mean, partially, you know, I'm right. I'm writing enough that I have some sense. Sometimes I just know this is what I want to do. Sometimes I don't know the stuff I think you take to workshop. It's better if you take stuff to workshop that you're just not sure about. Mm -hmm. I, I think the tendency early on when people, and it's not just in MFAs, anytime you're in a workshop um, type environment where you're through a community class or through just your own private group, we tend to want to bring stuff we think is good, right? We want to, you know, we can't help. Our ego wants to be impressive. Mm -hmm. um, and what's really humbling is when you, you know, you think a poem is pretty finished and you do that and then you find out it's not. And what, it's harder to take feedback when you do that. And so I, I think it's better when you come in with, you know, I don't really think this is finished. I just don't know what else to do to it at this point. I'd love some perspective. Um, but you're right. One of my little tricks is when I go to a workshop environment, I gather all the feedback, I write it down, I take all the notes back from the participants, and then I promise myself I won't look at it for at least two weeks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> don't open it. Don't look at it. So you need you, you just don't have the perspective. First of all, you'll start going and making changes to the poem, and you'll do it in a very haphazard way, and then you will, you know, I I uh, I think you've had Tony Tony uh, Alcantara mm -hmm. yeah. uh, is a good friend of mine, and he and I exchange work all the time and. In fact, that's part of my writing practice is I, if I write something in the morning, I'll just send a first draft to Tony. Oh, great. I trust yeah. him enough. I can send him or he'll send me a first draft and we'll just shh, poop all over it if we need to or <laughs> rip it apart. And there's not a lot of time invested in it. It's a practice, right? It's all practice. And you learn faster that way, I think. But in workshop, if you go and you start willy-nilly picking out what people said and trying to tinker with your poem, I think you'll lose the plot in terms of being able to um, to make it better. You'll probably just fuck it up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> at least that's what I do. Yeah, and then I eventually have to go back to the original version and just say, "Now, what was I actually trying to say here?" and mm -hmm. and start over with that revision process. Yeah, I mean, there's a way that workshops just ruin poems, and there's sometimes a poem will come in as a submission, and it'll be great except for this one stanza, and you can just see 
like, and I can see, you know, and I'll ask the poet, like, you know, this stanza was workshop, right? Can you show me the original? Do you have it? <laughs> and then the original yeah. is just way better than, because there's something well, about the idiosyncrasies of, of human beings and the emotional energy at the time. And there's something sort of clinical about a workshop that, that you have. Yeah, to and we have our, we yeah. all have our own syntax that comes from somewhere, right? Mm-hmm. Our natural voice. I try to write my natural voice. And I, sometimes when I try to incorporate feedback, I realize I've written away from my natural voice and I have to pull that back. And I think that's that's really important. And I think the other thing that happens is really easy to lose the original spark. So you can actually take a poem and you can you can work it to death till that, you know, it might be sonically perfect. It might be a perfectly little, you know, machine that you've built from a craft perspective, but the original juice it had because of whatever emotional movement was in the poet just somehow got lost or left on the floor, you know, when the cuts were happening. Um, and that is the danger of workshop, but at the same time, there's nothing better to find out where their where their things don't work, where it's not clear. Yeah, yeah, it's true. That's why we do the workshop on Fridays, the critique of the week, because it, it's really helpful. But you also have to not take it too seriously, which is something you have to uh, cultivate as a as a poet to to trust yourself rather than you know feedback is good, and you have to you know listen to feedback too. You have to sort of trust both and find a way to navigate the two. I think. Um, Andrea Hollander is here uh, in the chat. Hey, yeah. my poetry ma. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, if you could pick your own mother, that's a great mother to pick. Um, so, so she um, she says, I remember when you made tra- the transition and how we learn from past to present tense makes a huge difference. And, and you mentioned Tony Alcantara too. And and so you've met these great poets. How do you um, how did you go about meeting um, poets? Like when you entered the poetry world at age four, you know, mid forties, um, you know, and there's this. Um, I think there's a real like loneliness crisis in the world today because yeah. of our phones, because of how much interaction we have through mediated through digital device like this. Yeah. Um, and then we don't learn how to talk to people and we aren't as like communal in our work either. So there's a whole, you know, we don't have the religion to meet people there. We don't have hobbies like we used to. I mean, there's so many reasons we're yeah. lonely. Um, and, and so many people would want to find a community. How did you find such a great community when you started so out? Lucky. You know, I was involved with some of the literary arts, the literary arts organization in Portland for a while. And so I, we, you know, they were actually hosting um, poetry downtown at the time and they were bringing poets in periodically that were, were, you know, nationally known poets as well as local poets. And it was great. Um, ironically, I know you also had John Brim on. Um, so John was one of my early teachers as well. So I met John, um, very early on through a Zen teacher. Uh And, um, so it comes full circle. And then I met Andrea through John. And so, and then Andrea and I just, you know, hit it off immediately. Um, I could tell she got my aesthetic really well. And honestly, a lot of the, this book wouldn't have existed without Andrea Hollander and ironically, probably the pandemic. Because we kind of got through the pandemic together, sitting six feet apart with masks out in my on my terrace in Portland during the summer of 2020, working, we workshopping every single one of these poems by reading each one to each other one at a time and arguing over edits. And, you know, we would spend an hour over lunch arguing over the placement of a comma. And um, hopefully that shows, you know, in the book. Um, but that's how. And then, you know, now I've moved back and, and I, I live between um, Medellin, Colombia, as well as in North Carolina. And there's a thriving literary um, organization there. They've got Charlotte Lit in Charlotte, um, North Carolina. There's a, a, a very vibrant North Carolina Poetry Society there. There's the North Carolina Writers Network. Um, so you just but you have to reach out for that. You have to look for it. You have to build the community you want to have, because I think it's so easy um, to basically just be on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 
Well, let's see. If anybody has any questions for um, A.E. Hines, leave them in the chat windows on YouTube or Facebook. I already passed along one, but I'll be happy to pass along more. Um, if you're watching on Twitter, ignore or, or find YouTube because I, I, I can't keep up with three, but two I watch. So enter questions on Facebook or YouTube. But let's hear another poem. Uh, what do you want to do next? Well, since we're talking about 2020, why don't we actually go back to the summer of 2020 and read a poem that was written during that time called um, This Morning After the Riots which is on page 23. This morning after the riots, like the weather of my childhood in the deep south, thunder crashing over our roof, rattling every window, lightning, then hail firing down like bullets, pinging up from the ground and ricocheting off the glass. Last night, people who for weeks wore masks marched to downtown Portland and set fire to the courthouse. They burned cars and broke windows. They hurled rocks and firecrackers at police, then looted the Louis Vuitton. All night, flashbangs, tear gas, the roar of helicopters. This morning, thunder and hail and rain. In the South, sudden storms remained mysterious, biblical. Thunder, my grandmother explained, God moving his furniture. Rain, the angels crying over some injustice done to man by other men. The sun still shining, the devil beating his wife. Another Memorial Day, another bright Monday. The sun glowering down, another white officer snuffing out, another innocent black life. This is not mysterious. This is plain as the dead man's face. Be quiet, grandma would say, at any coming storm. The Lord is doing his work. And then it would thunder. Then it would rain. We sat at her window, still as corpses, and watched his bright finger crawl the dark, trembling sky. That is this morning after the riots. Um, and it's an interesting shift to, to the to a political poem there. Um, um how does it how do you go about writing political poems when, you know it's always difficult to write poems about political topics because you have a sort of sense that that you're preaching to the choir, that everybody sort of agrees with you. Um and and then, you know, but you still there there's this importance to the issues too. So so how do you go about approaching it where it's not just like saying the thing we already know? Yeah, that's a tough one actually. I found myself during twenty twenty, particularly after George Floyd's murder and then the you know, the 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 summer that was, right? After that, I I, I found myself wanting to speak, but I realized I just didn't necessarily I had to figure out a place to speak from. Um and I think it's important, you know, you, you know, one doesn't want to appropriate, um, you know, other people's challenges or pain, but you also want to be in solidarity with. And I, I, uh, I try to find a place where I can stand either from my own experience, where it feels like this is what's happening. In this case, I'm just saying we're standing back. There is a wild storm and uh, it is biblical because of the nature of how horrific it is. Um, so stand back. Right. It's an explainable thing, but it is it's a tough one. And a lot of times I've had, you know, like, I mean, I think the poem that was in Rattles Respond recently is is somewhat of a social justice political poem. And um, I find myself moved to write about those things. You know, it's one of the one of the wells I draw from. Um, But it's it's tricky. 
Like you got to make sure either you have reason to speak or you have, you know, you, you have a place to stand in the conversation. And sometimes I think that's a tough thing to do. And, and I know some poets have, you know, created stir by talking on topics or speaking on topics that people didn't think they were qualified to speak from. And mm-hmm. so I think that's, but I think it's, it's, it's worth the risk too, to try to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Um, Because you don't know, you you don't know what you think until you speak. I mean, that's the way that we go. And so for sort of censor ourselves from what we can talk about, maybe, maybe don't share certain things. But I think going there and seeing what happens is always good advice. Um, Going back to the workshop um, question. Um, there's a question from Paul Really. Um, he says, is there a way to make workshop? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, a bunch of people from North Carolina Poetry Society, too, here. Um, uh, so is there a way to make workshopping work? Uh, you mentioned working the poems with one other writer rather than a group. Is that one way? Um, are there others? That's interesting. So I, I think um, workshop does work. I mean, so I know it's it's problematic. Taking feedback from anyone is is um, a vulnerable thing, um, but I don't see how you get better. I mean, I, I I have talked to poets who've been in the business of poetry for a long time, who say they don't really share anything until they're ready to publish it anymore, and I think that's fantastic. I also don't know if I believe it. <laughs> <laughs> because uh-huh. I think that, you know, it's really easy to, you know, have an, you know, I think it's great when you have that level of perspective on your work, but it's just helpful to, and I think it's also, it's about community. So I think you're helping the other poets. I learn more in workshop listening to discussion on other people's poems than I do on mine. Mm-hmm. I learn more. I was like, oh, that's interesting. Oh, I could try that. Right. It's about learning how to use the 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 chisel and the hammer and all the various little tools in your box to, to play with language. And so I think workshop is great. I think working with an individual can be wonderful if you're lucky enough to find people that you can do that rapid um, exchange with. Um, sometimes I abandon poems because I just don't think there's enough there there. And sometimes just having someone I, you know, like the Tony example where I can just shoot a poem off and say, you know, here's what I wrote this morning. Mm-hmm. And just what kind of reaction you get tells you, is there something there? Because sometimes I don't I don't think I'm a particularly good um reader of my own work that's me i actually usually the things i think are pretty weak people tend will resonate with more often than not things i labor over sometimes not oh that's really and interesting. so yeah. it that may change that may i hope that changed it's actually one of my concerns as a writer i hope that changes over time that i have more perspective but i also think if you go back to why i started writing recently you know i'm i'm building a really nice poetry family of people that we get to share of ourselves by sharing work that's vulnerable and unfinished and then learning from each other and mm-hmm that to me is life-giving and worth doing. Yeah. Even when it hurts sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Um, what would you say is the thing that you learned? Are, are there, is a certain thing that you learned that's the most valuable as a writer from the, the people you've met? Is there, is there one sort of lesson that, you know, starting out seven years ago, you didn't know, but now you, you imply in your poems. The number one thing, well, this one, and I learned this from Andrea, um, this one is just don't know where you're going, right? The old adage of there's, you know, no surprise for the poet. There's no surprise for the reader in the poem. And the poems that I'm, you know, typically most happy with are the ones where where I literally describe it as, and then a miracle occurred. And this final image or this final line presented itself. And um, 
And that's how I got out of the poem, which sometimes feels like you've worked yourself into a maze. So that's the one thing I think I've learned is that, you know, if you really do know what, I mean, Dorian Lux in the Pacific program, you mentioned that she said, if you know what you're going to write, that's an essay, not a poem. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I've never forgotten that. Right. So it's like, don't, don't, don't worry about what you're writing. Just get in there and write it and have some faith that, you know, it'll present itself. If you, if you let the brain work on it long enough, which may happen in the shower or may happen when you're out on a walk or may happen when you're eavesdropping on the other people next to you at a coffee shop, which I do a lot. Um, and get a few poem starts that way, y it'll come to you, right? Some it'll, some image, some connection, some metaphor will come to you that you didn't otherwise, wouldn't have gotten by sitting in front of your keyboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't know if I answered the question, but I was enjoying the conversation. Whether <laughs> I would... <laughs> no, definitely. It's been a great conversation. I, I try to balance uh, the poems and the conversation, even when it's a good one. And so let's get more poems in. Um, let's go to the next, the next one. How many more we got? I want to make sure. Oh, we got, I, I, I could we do the three more or so. Three more? Okay. Um, let's do... Um, my one attempt at a 14-line sonnet-like poem in this book on page nine, which is almost like being choked by a lover. That summer, I follow him down to the shore, amid the salt grasses, beneath languid gulls, follow their calls of longing, while the sun chases our shadows east into the surf like departing souls. We bed down in the dunes. I let him touch me however he likes for as long as he dares. First day, senior year, his posse now in tow. From behind, he wraps his arm around my neck, then slams my thin body into the dirty bathroom wall. Not the first time. A whispered hiss, faggot poured over the red coal of my ear. Not the last time. My trembling hands reach back to touch the face of a man who hurts me. That was almost like being choked by a lover, again, from Any Dumb Animal, which we're reading A.E. Hines' first book. Um, what's it like? Is your, do you have a sense of how things are now versus when you grew up? Because that's one of the things I always have to resist thinking. I'm so like isolated. I'm surrounded by poets. I grew up in New York. Now I'm in California. It seems like homophobia is so archaic and old-fashioned and like doesn't exist yeah. anymore. And I have to be like, you know, remind myself that that's probably not the case. Um, do you have any sense of of what it would be like to grow up as you did, but now versus then? There's bright spots, I think, right, from what I can tell, but, you know, from what I know, right, from from just being, you know, watching a teenage boy grow up and seeing, you know, kids, kids, kids don't seem to have as many problems as adults do, um, which is still a concern. It's hard not to look at some of the laws that are being passed in in um, Florida, um, you know, um, targeting, you know, trans and gay people. And it's not just there, it's other places as well. Um, and not have some sense of trepidation. I mean, you know, that we talked about that, you know, the protest, you know, um, for example, drag shows are now the biggest threat to the American Republic that we've seen in 100 years. Um, and so some of those things are troubling to me in that regard. But I will say that youth still have youth still need advocates. Um, you know, the Trevor Project puts out this great research study every year. It's troubling, but great in terms of the level of work and social science they put behind it. But I, and I'll get the statistics wrong, but it's easy to look up. But, you know, it's something to the point of like 60 to 70 percent of queer youth under the age of like 21 considered suicide last year. Mm. Um, but their 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 chances of committing suicide is cut like many fold, like it goes down to like back into the normal range of the 
typical adolescent population if they have a single supportive adult in their life, oh, just wow. one, mm-hmm. just one. And so, you know, that, so I think that even though it's different, I, you still see, you know, gay youth are still far more likely to commit suicide. They're still marginalized um, and they're being used as political footballs all around the country right now for right versus left politics. And so better, but I mean, you know, is it better that we, is it better that the Congress just adopted a law to allow marriage to not be overturned by the Supreme Court? Yes. Is it scary that they had to? Yes. Since marriage was only made law just a few years ago. Um, And so it's still, it still comes up a lot in the South. I mean, I'm now that I'm back, I see it a lot. Someone said recently said, yeah, this woman asked me how, how she could reconcile her son's lifestyle with her faith. And I said, I just have never understood why straight people have lives and gay people have lifestyles, (laughs) you know? So, so, um, now I feel like I'm ranting, Tim. But anyway, so that, 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 that that's kind of my take on that, is that it, two steps forward, one step back, and help one person mm-hmm. makes a difference. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I think, you know, we actually have time to do all three of the last poems. I remember, I just remember I told Ron, 6.15 my time. So uh, we got 15 right. minutes left. Do you want to do uh, Gay Divorce? Oh, well, let's do one for Ron DeSantis. Um, ah, gay Divorce. <laughs> Which is on page 18. Gay divorce. Only our socks served two masters. Resting in their disarray drawer, our feet close enough in size that laziness, the law of community property, reigned. Why not throw the formal, the athletic, the cotton and wool together? Let them frolic a while. In the sad business of separation, we had no issue deciding who would take the dishes or the furniture. Like the blame, it was the whimsical we found impossible to divide. No one held dominion over any single pair or remembered who stuffed which into whose Christmas stocking, who first fancied this or that psychedelic pattern or should take the happy polka dot or rainbow stripe, the sequined pictures of reindeer. It would be this orgy of color we'd have such trouble breaking apart. The sad pineapple and banana, the smiley sun-faced emoji, neon marijuana leaves decorated in confetti and red holiday balls. That is a gay divorce from uh, Any Dumb Animal, again, by A.E. Hines. I was wondering... um, just at the timeline of your divorce and your finding poetry, was it sort of like you got divorced? You know, I imagine, you know, that, that they're related in some way. Was it the divorce then the poetry? Or the maybe poetry the, divorce the, divorce? Caused the poetry caused the divorce, maybe? Or yeah, yeah which around? one is the causal connection there? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I would actually say the poetry caused the divorce more uh-huh. than the divorce caused the poetry, actually. Um, yeah, my I, I, I kind of realized early on, once I started getting a few things published and my ex-husband had zero interest in reading anything, that he was not a poetry lover, but, um, but it was more than that. There was a, you know, it was a, it was a, just another sign that, you know, we were on different tracks in our life. Mm -hmm. And, um, so it was, um, you know, the thing about this poem, right. Is I wanted to, it's, it has the virtue of being, you know, quite true. You know, it's one of those things is like, you used to have all these friends in colleges, like, would you get two wardrobes because you're two guys living together and, and um, no, but we did have two. We did have a lot of socks we traded around, and um, 
you realize you've got this really sad thing, divorce, right? It is a sad business, divorce. When people go through it, it's it's horrific. It's like a death. And so how can you find anything artful in that? You know, how can you find anything worth that's beautiful in that? And um, and that was sort of my attempt in mm-hmm. this particular poem was to try to make art of something that was not pretty. Yeah, yeah, interesting. And, and so... So did the poetry enter and then sort of open your eyes to the problems with the marriage? Or would you say that the, the problems with the marriage were there and then poetry was there. a refuge or something like that? Yeah, no, I mean, you know, I hopefully I haven't used, um, you know, the page as, you know, as a, you know, a place to grind the axe or the pen. Um, but um, uh, it, it certainly it certainly helped me. Um, I, here's Here's what I'll say. I was thinking about this a lot coming out of the residency I just came from and workshopping as we were talking a lot about obsessions. What are your obsessions and betrayal and failed relationship issues, right? Relationships in general and where they, where they fail us or we get feel betrayed by them is one of the things I'm obsessed with. And so if I don't have those in my life now, and I don't, I'm writing about other people's um, because clearly it's something that intrigues me. And um, I think we also, at least for me, I tend to write from whatever's happening in my life at the time. Not to try to catalog it, but it just seems to be what, you know, pervades my mind when I'm writing. And so those situations, you know, end up on the page. And so I think because I was going through this divorce at the time, I was putting the book together, even though it was several years after the the divorce, three, four years after the divorce, I think, when the, the book was finished. Um, yeah, there was a lot of divorce poetry in there, just by virtue of that being that phase of my life, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, we have time for two more poems. Uh, what was the second to last one? Second to last is going to be, um, and talk about dating myself. It's called Bohemian Rhapsody, 1991. <laughs> it's on page 64 of the book. And it has an epigraph from the song by Queen. Mama, life had just begun. When Freddie Mercury was sweating out the fever, fire burning up his blood, I was 21, still in college, and dancing in a back alley bar. A place with no street number, no name, a place hidden behind a steel-reinforced door so the bigots of Carolina wouldn't send us all up in flames. The boy pulling me to the floor, big torch of a man, pulled off his shirt to brandish his navy tattoos then placed my quaking hand on the sweaty vault of muscle and skin that shielded the base of his throbbing heart. Over Mercury's yell, he spat the news in my ear, said he had it too, the fire in his blood, asked if I cared, asked if we could both burn up together. News we all feared, expected, Freddie Mercury singing out the last lines, his voice vibrating in our chest, his words pouring out our drunken throats. We college boys and midshipmen, we married men, our wives missing us at home, all of us burning up together in that back alley bar. Each one sure Beelzebub did indeed have a devil put aside just for him, that we'd all be dead by fall that nothing anymore really mattered. And that is uh, Bohemian Rhapsody, 1991, again, from Any Dumb Animal. Um, so what has your uh, experience publishing been like? 
Um, do you have any, you know, tips and advice? I'm, I'm wondering because you come from a different, you know, different, many different careers you mentioned. Um, is there things that you've applied to the publishing process that you think maybe most poets don't or the writing process or just getting yourself out there because of the different things that you've worked? Like what could we learn from you as somebody who's done a whole bunch of different things besides for poetry? Well, so that's an interesting question because I, I, um, I've talked to a lot of writers about this, actually. And I've had writers approach me like, you're pretty new at this, but you're getting published a lot. What's going on? Um, how do you do it, right? Um, you'd like to think the work's good, you know, you'd hope. Um, but besides that, I think that's, I think it's just, I think it's partially a numbers game. I think there's a lot of good work and there's not a lot of outlets for the poetry relative to the amount of work. I mean, I can only imagine what your inbox and submission folder looks like. So, so I, I basically divorced myself very early on from being um, too emotionally worked up by rejection. Mm-hmm. I just treat it like, a numbers game. Like I've got these poems. I think they're good. I'm going to send them out and I'm going to send them out. I'm going to send them out. I'm going to send them out. And so I've gotten very good about making a database of places I would like to appear. And, and I just keep sending them out and they can reject me over and over and over and over. And I just keep sending them out. (laughs) And I, I, you know, and I, I, um, I mean, like I got four rejections today, Oh wow! but then I got one, but then I got one acceptance today. So you know, but that's how it works. And so I, I think if you, if you believe in the work and you, you, and you read a lot and you see where, what kind of things editors are looking for. And, and also you can't take it personally because the reality is I, I heard um, Kwame Dawes was talking about this uh, at workshop this past week. And he said, the poems we publish aren't necessarily always the absolute best poems. He said, they're the best poems for the journal we're putting together for that issue. Mm-hmm. Right. They're the best poems we can find, but they may not be the absolute best. Every poem in there may not be the, you know, we turn away a lot of really, really good poems. Mm-hmm. And so you have to think about that and, and know that, you know, and if you get like a, a note back from an editor that says, we really like this poem, it didn't fit our needs, you know, you need to send it to 10 other places the next day. Um, and so I would say just, you just get organized, keep a, keep a database of everywhere you can publish that you want to publish get get smart about what they what they look for and then just be really patient and persistent. Mm-hmm. And, and how many uh first of all how many poems would you say you write in a year and then how many submissions do you make? Do you can you think of the numbers oh, since God. you mentioned databases? Oh, Lord. Well, I couldn't tell you a number off the top of my head but but I could go and look in the folder. I could tell you but it would be uh <clears throat> it would not be a easy task to do. I probably I what I'll do is I will go on a um I treat it like a business. I, I hate to say that, and I know that every poet in the audience just cringed. But I write and I write and I revise and I revise, and then periodically I give my ma- I give my creative brain a complete break. Mm-hmm. And what I do is I organize poets and I do, or poems and I send them out and I create packages of them, and then I make and then I go through my database of every single journal I want to try to to get those into, and I start sending them out. And so I make it a little factory. I just start sending out poems, and and so I probably write. God, um, you know, I'm doing this program right now. So, I mean, I'm writing a lot more than I might normally. So I'm probably writing 30, 40 new poems over a three to four month period, typically, mm-hmm. of which maybe 10 or 15 are worth sending out. Maybe that's my opinion, right? Not necessarily the editors. Um, and uh, and then send them out. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I answered the second part of your question, but. No, I, didn't, I mean, it's right. a good number. And, you know, one of the things I won't say who, because I'm not sure they probably want me to say it, but um, there's a poet that we publish a lot in Poets Respond. 
and I looked up how many times, and like a dozen times maybe, and I looked up how many times they submitted. Um, and it was. Uh, I'm going to guess Sonia Greenfield. I'm going to guess. Off <laughs> well, top if of my I head. say yes or no, I'm going to conf- neither confirm nor deny that it's Sonia Greenfield. Uh, it's not though. <laughs> oh, okay. <Fair laughs> but because um, I don't want to imply that it is, but it's not. But um, anyway, it's a poet we published a lot. And you Poetry looked Smart. at how many times? How many times? And it was 537. You know, and so there you go. And and it's to people yeah. think like, oh, they must have a poem in there. No, it's because they do it every week, <laughs> and we've been doing it for ten years. And so, yeah. um, you know, some weeks it's the right poem for the right time. And especially right. with that, it's never more clear than with Poets Respond, which because you know, if we had a poem last week about a certain event, and then we have a poem this week, and it's maybe the best poem, but it's the same event. Same event. You yeah. Know, maybe you know, maybe we'll like find a way to do multiple poems or something. But you got to think about this whole sort of trajectory. I think with a regular rattle, we don't think about it as much. Um, you know, because you're just kind of gra- grabbing poems and smooshing them and together and seeing ball. how they there's look. A time but too, yeah, exactly. Yeah, but but so in some things, yeah, and so you just keep grinding at it, which is great advice. Um, but we're coming up on time now. Great conversation. Thanks, AE, uh, for for being here. Let's do the last poem. Okay. Hopefully, this poem. You know, this poem, the last in the book as well, and it's meant to be a hopeful poem. You know, it's about death, um, but it's, <laughs> <laughs> as they are, um, and it's called "Dog in the Pear Tree." I tell my husband I want to be of use, like this thin sapling, her roots spreading slow in the shallow earth of our backyard. For years, just a respite where small birds hide from hawks, a few desultory flowers, laden finally with silver white blossoms, the promise of fruit. Our old dog resides for years in the square confines of a red tin, thin print of thorny rose crowning its taped lid. I sprinkle her like a prayer into the concave well dug fresh in our raised bed, then loose the fibrous rope, lower black roots from the burlap sack. I tell my husband, this is what I want. No special parcel, no marker, no need to keep me like a genie and a lamp on his bedside table or unfurl and waste me in surf and wind. Like the old dog, give me a hundred ripening eyes, growing heavy, bowing still tender limbs, the caress of damp fingers, my round seated nubbins, plucked season after season, tasted all over again. Yeah, that was Dog in a Pear Tree, the final poem in uh, Any Dumb Animal, which you can pick from uh, pick up from Main Street Rag. Um, thanks so much, Earl, for being a guest today. It's great talking to you. A lot of interesting stuff going on uh, in this discussion and great poems, too. I uh, really appreciate being here. Thank you for having me. It was delightful. Yeah, thanks so much. And that was A.E. Hines. Uh, and once again, his book is Any Dumb Animal, which you can find from Main Street Rag Press. You can also find A.E. at his website, aehines.net. And that's um, A-E-Hines, H-I-N-E-S, dot net. Okay, so we are going to take a quick break, and we are going to get uh, Ron Kirchy on the line. And Ron uh, has been, as I mentioned, is from Rattlecast number um, 47 he was on. He's been on Rattle many times, and he has a new book, I Dreamed I Was Emily Dickinson's Boyfriend. So um, spicy title there. We'll see what the book is all about in just a moment with Ron Kirchy. So sit tight, and I'll be right back. And then after that, we'll do the open lines. So, um, so see you in a minute. And we're back with this week's special guest, Ron Kirchy. It, it took a long time to decide what to do with poets who have appeared on the show 
Um, but then they have new books. So I want to have them back, but then there's like, you know, a, a limited number of shows. And so what we decided to do is have these segments where we have uh, guests come back and share new books. And like I mentioned, um, Ron Kirchie's new book is I Dreamed I Was Emily Dickinson's Boyfriend. And uh, here he is, Ron Kirchie. Hey, Ron, how you doing? I'm good, Tim. I'm cold, as you can see, but it's cold up in this theater because our gas bill was $295. Oh, wow. I know. And that's in Pasadena. So, and as we yeah. recall, the house from um, um, Halloween, the movie, right? Yes. One of, one of the, the not, well, John Carpenter used many houses, but our house is the one where Jamie Lee Curtis walks out of a side door with a pumpkin, sits on a stoop out in front. And we have, I don't know, maybe 800 people a year mm-hmm. come by in a pilgrimage to sit where she sat. So, I mean, I, you know, I take my fame where I can get it. <laughs> you definitely do. So, um, so this new book, um, I Dreamed I Was Emily Dickinson's Boyfriend. Tell us a little bit about it, about what the, how the book came together. And, uh, and I can't help but thinking how, um, um, you know, Billy Collins was undressing Emily Dickinson, which kind of upset people. And now you're her boyfriend. So, so you're looking to get in trouble with this book, Ron. <laughs> well, I hope so. I, I, I like, I like to get in trouble. Um, uh, I'm, I'm in a, Poetry writing workshop every other Sunday with a few friends of mine. And I read a poem and someone said, oh, my God, you can't publish that. You know, you'll be it'll be cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to be canceled. <laughs> I, I mean, those kind of those kind of things don't bother me. I'm the guy who wrote Stoner and Spaz, the most profane young adult novel in the history of young adult literature, and also the most stolen young adult book in any librarian's library. Mm-hmm. So, cancel <laughs> then, me. Yeah, I think you've been sort of canceled on both sides for that, right? Because, um, um, you know, sto- the the topic for for puritanical like parents and librarians is something, and then and then spaz is not a word that that people appreciate uh, these days either. So, so you probably get it both ways for that book. I do, and every time I'm on a banned book list, my sales peak. Uh huh. Sell another twenty or thirty copies. Yeah. So those those banners. I'm not sure they know what they're doing here. They're just making me richer all the time. I ought to buy a hat with that money because my head's cold. <laughs> there you go. So, so um, I dreamed I was Emily Dickinson's boyfriend. Um, let's hear a poem from the book. What do you want to read? Okay. I'm going to read a couple. That's what we said. And the first one is um, called Yahweh Barbie. And what page is that? Yahweh. It's on page 57. Okay. Um. And I'll just tell you the, what's that fancy word? Provenance. I love that word. The provenance of this poem. I was looking at my nieces at a family dinner. My wife has, I don't know, 142 brothers and sisters. So, and they're big family dinners. The nieces are playing with their dolls and they had Bratz dolls. Do you know Bratz, Jim? Yeah, I've seen them before. Mm -hmm. Yeah, B-R-E-T-Z. And they're playing with Bratz and Barbie, and they're squabbling in their play. So, I mean, any poet who is watching knows when that little chime goes off in your head, and you think, oh, there's a poem brewing in here. So here's Yahweh Barbie. Forget Nurse Barbie with her pink stethoscope. No more firefighter Barbie, who checks her makeup before rushing to the blaze. Yahweh Barbie is jealous and angry. She is a devouring Barbie. Just imagine her at Becky's next tea party with pretend this and pretend that and a kitty in a bonnet. 
Barbie will bring a whirling tempest, Oreos and Ritz crackers utterly destroyed, Becky's frilly room a wasteland, dream horse running amok, dream camper exploding with can inside. The army of brats will bend the knee and avert every eye since thou shall have no other dolls before Barbie. And that was Yahweh Barbie. Again, from uh, I Dreamed I Was Emily Dickinson's Boyfriend. A great cover, too, as, as Renhead always does great covers. Um, that is uh, Ron Kirji's newest book. Um, so, Ron, how has your life changed since the last Rattlecast? I, I remember every time I talk to you, I'm supremely jealous of your existence, of just sitting down. You used to go to the racetrack a lot and hang out with friends who weren't writers and then come home and, and write and, um, and, and just having so much fun with writing. Uh, is that still what you're doing? Are you just writing every day and hanging out? And, and are, you, are you drawn more to poetry, too, than, than novels now? My job is to make people jealous. <laughs> well, it's working. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Well, you know, ironically, I mean, yes. I mean, for one thing, I have a really light heart. I have a light touch with poetry, as you know. Um, at a reading not too long ago uh, with, with some friends of mine afterwards, someone in the, um, in the audience came up and said, you know, Ron, I enjoyed those poems, but I was waiting for you to read a real poem. And he meant meter and rhyme. You know, he meant seriousness he meant bathos he meant pathos and all other words that rhyme with that and he said how do you feel about just being an entertainer and i said that's a high compliment for me mm -hmm. i love to entertain people so if that means writing lighthearted poems then that's what i do but you're right i go to the races a lot i hang out with people who can probably not spell poetry um i come home um, I, I may have written before I left, but I write 365 days a year. I write every day. I write from 8 to 11. And when people, you would, you, you may be going to ask me this, the, do you have any advice for young writers? I think writing is like working out. You have to do it all the time. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, you're not in shape. You're not in writing shape. So. Yeah. So talk about, can you talk more about that, about, about being entertaining as a writer? Um, I mean, that's one of the complaints we get a lot and, and, you know, that, that poetry is so dark and depressing and it's, there are really so few people that shine a light on, um, you know, what life can be through poetry and, and then the ones that do become popular. I mean, you know, we mentioned Billy Collins already. That's kind of what, um, 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 what's her name? The, uh, the other one, the, uh, you know, I drew a blank. The uh, Mary too. Oliver, Mary Oliver. That's what I'm thinking of. Yeah, like, yeah, I keep yeah. saying Sharon Olds in my head, and that's not what I'm talking about. Mary Oliver, you know, shining light through nature. Um, and then those are the best-selling poetry books as far as contemporary poetry go. There's like a thirst for for light and 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 happiness, but then we write so much toward darkness. Do you have any sense of why that is? I don't. I all I can do is write with the gift that the gods gave me. Mm -hmm. Right, and my gift is not to be uh, dark or foreboding or stormy. But the second poem that I'll read whenever you want me to is about Snow White. And it is, it's, I mean, this sounds immodest, but it's such a beautiful poem. And when I say that, that's not to cast myself in a light saying I'm a wonderful writer. My idea of being, of being a writer like I am is to keep the door open between the finite and the infinite. 
the poems are out there. Mm -hmm. All I have to do is open the door and be available. And that's what I do every morning. I'm available. What comes to me um, are poems like I Dreamed I Was Emily Dickinson's Boyfriend. That isn't a poem I like to read at readings. You've seen it in its, you know, it's punchy, short stand after short stanza. But it and its companion poems are what I can do. So I don't try to be somebody who's not himself. I mean, I have people in the in the kind of the spiritual business, and one of their hallmarks is authenticity. And I'm about as authentic as I can get. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd say so. So, um, what else do you have um, going on as far as prose? You know, you've written so many young adult novels. Are you still doing that too, or are you focusing more on poetry right now? Well, I, it, the coincidence is really lovely. Today, a guy I taught with in an MFA program for what we call Kidlit, um, our um, you know picture book writers, middle grade writers, historical fiction, YA. Gary and I wrote a book uh, a few months ago. It's at HarperCollins. We talked to the editor today, and she's very high on it. So if HarperCollins takes the book, then I'll be back in that business again. Mm -hmm which would be great. I like the kid lit business. I like to shake the moist hands of librarians. <laughs> librarians love writers. Mm -hmm. You know, they go to ALA and they line up for can sign their books. I just, I'm, I'm very, very fond of librarians. And if they'll dress up like Mother Goose, they're really at the top of my list. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's hear the other poem you wanted to share. Um, Snow White. Uh, and which it's, page is um, Yeah. It is on... Page 69, and the title is The Uneasy Trance Will Never Break. And a friend of mine called me a couple of years ago after reading a poem by a poet named A. Alvarez. Do you know him? Um, I know Amy Alvarez, but not A. Alvarez, no. Yeah, this guy was A. Alvarez, and my friend Michael lifted this line, The Uneasy Trance Will Never Break, and he emailed me and he said, you've written about so many fairy tale characters, and if you have one more poem in you, I'll bet the poem is here. Mm -hmm. And I looked at it and I thought, oh yeah, yeah, there's something here. So this is in the voice of Snow White. Um, do you guys remember the story really briefly? She's with the seven dwarves. The Wicked Queen keeps showing up in, in a different outfit and Snow White is so dense, she can't tell it's the Wicked Queen. And, and she tries to poison her one way after another. This poem turns on the idea that Snow White has bitten the poisoned apple and gone into a trance, a kind of coma. And then the dwarves put her in a glass coffin, which I found fascinating. Mm -hmm. So she's out of the trance, and she, this is her voice. This is Snow White. There I lay with a piece of apple caught in my throat. I wasn't dead. But I wasn't alive, not in the usual sense. Trance is the perfect word. Uneasy trance. I could see the same sky move from light to dark, to light again and again, and always the dwarf to stand guard. They took turns like they took turns cooking and washing up. Sometimes happy polished the glass coffin, bashful looked askance, and alone with me, they bared their souls. They didn't know that I could hear. 
I can't repeat the things they said. They're private beyond privacy. The privacy transmuted into mystery. They loved me truly. One kiss from any of them, and I would have sat up and yawned. But maybe they didn't want to stand on a box to do it. Maybe they didn't know how to kiss. I was bored as any figurine in a snow globe. I was happy to see the prince. He loved me in the customary true love way. And after his customary kiss, I got to take a deep breath. As I said goodbye to the dwarves, I whispered to each of them, your secrets are safe with me. They wept like children and held onto my skirt as I tore myself away. And that was an, an e uneasy trance. The uneasy trance will never break. Again, we're reading a couple poems from I Dreamed I Was Emily Dickinson's Boyfriend, the, the great new book by Ron Kirchie. Um, before we go around, we were talking earlier about... Um, about um you know the business like treating writing as a business and how we don't like to do that um as writers we like to think that we'll just write and then it won't we won't have to do anything else and you are one of the most interesting people you don't have any kind of social media presence you don't do anything of that um but i've had the the pleasure of having you at reading several times at the at the arts festival that we do um at the regular reading series and you do a better job of of selling books is if we can be that blunt than anybody i've ever seen after a poetry reading um, and how do you go about, like you mentioned earlier, um, that the title poem is kind of choppier, so you, didn't, you don't usually do that at readings. Right. How do you go about engaging an audience in a way that will make them want to buy the book, since we were talking about uh, the business before? Like, what advice could you give? Well, I'm charming. <laughs> yeah. I'm charming, and my poems are accessible. And But this, I mean, I know we're running out of minutes, but... I don't have any problem with the business part of poetry. It's a business. You send the poems out. You send them to the right magazine. If you get the right poem with the right magazine, with the right editor at the right time, they'll take your poem, right? Mm -hmm. The business is sending things out, not being discouraged, turning that set of poems around once you, when you get the rejection slip and sending it right back out again, right? Mm -hmm. It's a business. So, so how at readings? Like, do you what what poems do you pick? Um, you know, how do you how do you know what you're going to do? And the reading style too. Um, is there a way that you try to deliver poems to the audience so that they can appreciate them? I read the room, mm -hmm. right? A lot of poets don't. You know, they they look at the room. They don't read the room. They read the wrong poem and they read too long. Almost everybody I know reads too long. Uh -huh. So. Uh, Eloise Klein-Healy and I are reading at Beyond Baroque this Saturday night, 8 o'clock, if you're around the, the Venice area. And Eloise and I chatted the day. We're not going to read too long. We want people to be glad they came and want more. So that's what we're going to do. That's what I always do. Now, reading with my friends, I've been reading with Kim Dower a lot, who I adore. Kim and I are pretty lighthearted. We're pretty lively. And we have a lot of back and forth persiflage, a great word you don't hear often enough. And by the time we get up there and get going, the audience is warm and they like us and they buy more books than usual. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Well, great advice. I knew you had good good advice there, Ron. I really appreciate it. And really appreciate you sharing this new book with me. I didn't even know you were going to send me a hard copy version of it. That's It's going to be a, a real bookshelf um, honoree. Uh, with a beautiful cover. That is, uh, I dreamed I was Emily Dickinson's boyfriend. Uh, thanks so much, Ron. Always a pleasure talking to you. Great to see you again. Me too. Nice talking to you. Hope to see you soon. Yeah, Bye-bye. definitely. Take care, Ron. You bet. Yeah, that was Ron Kirchie with uh, his new book. Like I said, I Dreamed I Was Emily Dickinson's Boyfriend. Um, you can find all of Ron's books, which are, I don't even know how many he's got at this point, 30 maybe, um, at his website, which is Ron Kirchie. I have to tell you how to spell it, R-O-N-K-O-E-R-T-G-E.com, ronkirchie.com. Check out the website, get all of his books. They're all wonderful. Um, now we're going to take a quick break and go to our open lines. And let me tell you how that works. Uh, I'll put this up on the screen. First, email your poem to open mic. That's open M-I-C at rattle.com. And then um, once you do that, then I can show the poem on screen like I was doing for Ron's poems and, and for um, A.E. Hines' poems as well. Um, and then I'm going to get the, the chat, uh, the, the Zoom link, and put it in the chat windows on uh, Facebook and YouTube. It's now deployed. Only, only follow this link if you'd like to share a poem, though. Um, but if you want to share a poem, email it to me and then join us on the Zoom, which I'm about to paste on the Facebook and YouTube chats. I'm going to pin it to the top to make sure you see them um, and then hop over on the Zoom. I think it's going to be a one poem night probably because um, it's already 630 my time. Um, but um, but hop over and do that. I'm, I'm deploying the links as we speak. I'm going to take a quick break and be right back with the open lines. Share one poem, anything you'd like. You can do the prompt. You can do uh, current events poems. You can do poems you've published recently and are proud of, and you can include the link where they're published online that we can show off the journal too, which we always love. So do that, and I will see you in just a moment. And we're back. Thanks for your patience. Hope you got to refresh your drinks while we were uh, getting this all set up. Now, the prompt for this week was uh, based on Sonny Greenfield, last week's guest. She writes a lot of news poems. So we thought we would do a uh, prompt news poem based. And uh, the prompt went something like this. Go to a newspaper of your choice. Find a headline you find completely uninteresting. Read the entire article and let your mind wander. Write a poem about where it went. Um, Title it with a phrase... Uh, from the article. So that was the prompt for this week. Let me do this. Okay. That was a prompt for this week. And my poem for this week, um, I I don't even know if I have to tell you the article. It doesn't really matter because it was boring the hell out of me. Um, But it was this, and this is my poem. The Royal Estate. The Royal Estate. The sad prince was sad that he didn't know sadness. A butler brought his every whim. Fetched me four hummingbirds playing the harmonica, he'd said just this morning. And here they were, blurred wings buzzing, the silver lid of the dinner tray, harmonica propped up on a pair of golden wishbones, everything gleaming. And they were quite the quartet, two Annas on the high end, a Rufus and a helmet crest taking bass. They even knew show tunes and seemed pleased when the prince could guess them, though the prince only sighed. Next time, bring me something I don't want, he said to the butler, still perched at the door. "'Didn't I just?' the butler replied. "'Through a window behind them, across a long courtyard at the far end of the great garden, "'the lonely prince was watching through a telescope, the words lost to the distance. "'He handed it off to one of his several handmaids. "'It wasn't yet time for tea.'" So that is the royal estate. You can probably guess a certain prince with a certain book, and I don't even know the title of it after reading the article. But that is me, uh, me poem for this week. Let's see what everybody else has. 
Um, first up, we'll just go in the order people appear. And I do think it's a one-poem night. Um, first up, we will do uh, Dick Westheimer. Hey, Tim. Hey, Dick. How you doing this evening? Um, I'm, I'm doing great. That, that was... Uh, that was a uh, top tier interview with um, A. Hines. That was terrific. Yeah, it's always nice. I mean, he made it easy. Uh, a great person to talk to. Really interesting subject matter too. So, um, yeah, excellent. I really enjoyed it. Well, and it was uh, you know as a as a brother coming to poetry late in life person, it was there was a lot going on there that I was thinking about. That believe it or not, he and I had in common. So that yeah. was. That's that's interesting. It, it made me remind me that I wanted to do a tribute to like I don't know how to call it like late blooming poets or something like that um yeah, yeah. um i think that'd be a good issue i'm not sure what the cutoff should be like 40 maybe i'm not sure but but poets who came to poetry later in life would well, be make really it, make it make it 65 make it 65 make it... Yeah. <laughs> yeah i guess maybe that would help um yeah that, that would that would help uh, limit uh, winnow the field yeah i wonder how many though it seems like um i don't know i, I think, think most 40, poets start under 40, 40 i'd say yeah, forty is great, you know, mm-hmm. because you know it it uh, it separates the folks who have, you know, just came to it with a great passion, and you know, as young people, to those of us who didn't read our first poems until we were, you know, gone grown. So, mm-hmm. so what do you have that you like to share with us this week? Um, I'll share a a day like any other in America. I had a hard time with the prompt, and I think it's because it's kind of what I do. Oh yeah, <laughs> and and. Yeah, but but I, I really like the prompt, and I'm going to continue sort of working around it the way you framed it. But I, but nothing happened for me this week. Yeah, well, honestly, the reason I picked that as the prompt was so that because I think that's how you have to do a poet respond poem. I think you have to sort of find a way to relate to it and, and let yourself wander with the story rather than just um, just you know have because you always have an opinion about the news, which is the problem. Opinions are like get in the way of poems. I think poems aren't aren't really opinions. They're they're something deeper than that. Yeah. And and it's not that opinions don't emerge in poems like the, the, this poem I'm going to read. I, I did. I did let my I was just very much interested in the specific. This is a woman I didn't know in my township down the street off the same road I am who was who was murdered. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, it's um, somebody who you'll never hear about. And I just sort of started looking at Google Maps and, you know, Street View mm-hmm. and started sort of like trying to put myself into her life and um, as just a single person. Yeah. So um, a day like any other in America. The house looks like yours if you live in a brick and in, in a brick trimmed exurban ranch, winter brown grass tufts through the cracks in the blacktop. A little east BMW sits in the neighbor's drive. Curtains, floral print, frame the window across the way. And a little arborvitae hedge grows in the front yard. A classic Camaro is by the garage. Next to it lies a body, dead. The body was a woman. The woman had a name, Casey. Here's what we should know. Casey was once an infant. Her tiny hand reached up to her mother's face like a little seedling seeking light. She was milk drunk more than once. In many days, she crawled into her granddad's lap. Now, above her body is a stolen blue sky. It's the first clear day in a month of grays. The sun makes the blood pooling by the Camaro glisten, illuminates the chalk outline 
of what was her. It's just another day in this township of mine, and the woman, now dust, I bet she shopped at the local Kroger, bagged her own like I do. Maybe she cast her ballot at the elementary school down the road where I vote. Maybe she pulled the R lever, maybe the D, maybe the drug deal that went wrong was her fault. Maybe her boyfriend's. Maybe the shooter was chewing gum. Who knows such things? I hear the rupture of guns so many days around here, sometimes staccato, sometimes a hailstorm, sometimes a lone report off in the distance. What did you expect when you moved to the country, they say? I say, who knows how far a bullet flies? I think a lot about that. When I walk today, I'm under the same sun that makes the chalk line glint quicksilver, like the sweep of a sorcerer's staff. Every siren heard is someone's horror. Every gunshot makes me jump. I've read there's no algorithm for truth, but I am sure there is. A flame does not that does not burn is false. A wind that blows is true. A bullet is a small cannonball, a ballette, as it were and no one shoots cannon for sport. Everyone's shot is an act of war. Yeah, great poem, Dick. And that, that, I remember that from the submissions. Great ending, especially. Those last three stanzas are just excellent as it picks up um, and, and really great lines throughout. Thanks for sharing that, Dick. Always a pleasure. Yeah, thank you, Tim. Yep. Really appreciate it. Take care. Bye. It was Dick Westheimer with um, A Day Like Any Other in America. And let's, uh, let's go next to Chris Kaiser, who I have to apologize to. Hey, Chris. <laughs> hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great. So glad you could be here. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, and I, I forgot to give you the Zoom link for the beginning of the show. And so, because <laughs> uh, you're the poet from, um, from uh, Sunday's poem. Um, so, yeah. so let's, since you're here, I don't know if you have another poem you want to read too, um, but let's talk about this poem that we published, um, Tenderness. Okay. Um, yeah. What about um, uh, what was it that inspired the poem? How did it come to be? Um, well, exactly how I wrote in the little blurb. I was listening to this program. It was about how the city of Columbus, Ohio, is tackling the uh, waste uh, problem, and most of it has to do with trying to get uh, people and restaurants to compost more. But um, I, one one of the things that the reporter said was that um, one third of the waste in landfills comes from homes, <clears throat> and that really surprised me. Having worked in some uh, restaurants and um, and knowing people in in retail, like at grocery markets, and how much waste goes on. So, <clears throat> but this this um, incident that happened to me when I was in my 20s, I just never forgot at this manager throwing these slabs of prime rib right into the trash can as his teaching method, you know, to, to get somebody to, to do the right thing. And um, it, it's still disturbing to think about it. Mm-hmm. And, and how did, uh, do you always write in the slant rhyme or not the slant rhyme, but the kind of the rhyme style that you did here, which was just so lovely. Um, I, you know, to me, I didn't notice until like several, you know, maybe 10 lines in that you were even rhyming and a bunch of people noticed, you know, in the email that they replied to me, said, I didn't even know that poem rhymed until I read it for the third time. Um, is that the way that you go about writing usually? Do you, do you usually have a rhyme scheme like that, or do you do you? How do you usually write? How typical is that? No, is I, your style? I, I don't. Um, 
I don't rhyme a lot, although one um, class that I took, the teacher complimented me on the way that I rhyme, the slant rhymes and the half rhymes. Um, and that was specifically for poems, for assignments where she was calling for rhyme. <clears throat> but this, I attended the critique on Friday and you specifically said you like formal poetry and you wish, and you like rhyme and you wish more people would write and send it in. And I thought <laughs> I had already had two versions of this poem. And at the last hour, for some reason, I says, well, let me try to write a sonnet. And it was really difficult. Um, and I felt like sleeping halfway through because <laughs> yeah. it was getting late and I was up against the deadline. Uh, but um, I just stuck with it and I didn't, I wasn't too anal about making sure that every line had 10 syllables. There's some with 11 and with the rhymes as well. I didn't want to get too hung up on having them be exact rhymes. So uh, uh, because I thought, okay, we can still do sonnets today, but they, because of, the way that you were talking about formal poetry and, and um, you don't want to be old fashioned with it. And you don't want to make the um, you don't want to have such a high bar for admission into the poem. Uh, so I took all that, uh, you know, very, <laughs> very quick assimilation of that advice. Very cool to see. Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah, very cool. And uh, so I'm glad that you sent another poem too. So you sent the poem passing. Um, which yeah. for the open lines, which is great. So can you tell us anything about this and then you can read it? Um, this, I have a poem that's longer that I'm not really sure works. So there were a couple of lines from there that I liked. And I, when I started this poem with one of them, the, the first three lines, then the, there's some more of that poem further down. And I just had this idea of um, some kind of hypocrisy and the things that we value um, that that we we value people loving things that are invisible mm -hmm. and not readily apparent rather than the human being in front of them. Oh, interesting. Well, let's hear this. This is passing. Go ahead. Whenever you're ready, I'll pull it uh, up for everybody at home. <clears throat> Passing, blue breath, blue balls, nightly concussions. I hate the way I was taught to love. All movement, no dance, like being stuck to flypaper. Your love digs deep into my disease, looks for a biopsy of light to extract, finds only a dying star in a vacuum of soundless fury. But I love Jesus hanging on the cross, loincloth hiding ecstatic balls, merely posing as blue. I stare into his Western blue eyes, tell him I renounce the imperative to renounce. Still, I'm forced to pass as a Protestant, maintain a tone subtler than the hum of Waterford crystal glassware, then watch my divorced alcoholic friends buy into the vocabulary of revelation, no yielding to doubt and uncertainty, their own balls blue as life ever after. 
Oh, that's great. Yeah, so I'm going to share that too. That was Passing, again, by Chris Kaiser. And that gives me an idea that I think, um, you know, because sometimes we have two poets on the Poets Respond, and sometimes we only have one. I think every time we have one, I'll say, you know, bring a second poem. And that'll be a perfect way to start it out. That way the opening segment will be the same length. So I'm glad this worked out this way, even though I'm sorry for <laughs> I forgot to send you the Zoom link beforehand. Yeah, I'm I'm kind of new to Rattle, so I didn't know. You didn't even know. Something yeah. yeah, see, I was supposed to say, ball. I was supposed to say, join us right at the beginning of the show. Um, yeah. But that was just, I, I flubbed that one. But thanks. Great to meet you, Chris. All I'm right. glad you're here. Thank and, you. uh, and thanks for sharing uh, both these two poems. It was great to re- read both and hear you. Thank you. Yep. Take care. It was Chris Treiser. He was Sunday's poet um, on Poetry Respond. If you didn't, if you missed the very beginning of the show and his um, po- poem that we were talking about, you can scroll back and in uh, the first five minutes and see that poem too. Let's go uh, to the next Open Lines poet, though. We'll resume the regularly scheduled programming and go to Carla Schwartz. Hi, everybody. (laughs) So far, so good. What a great night. Yeah. Hey, Carla. Great to see you again. Uh, How are you doing tonight? Thank you. I'm okay. Um, I also had trouble with this prompt, but I decided I I threw it out there. (laughs) Um, So this is my prompt. It was inspired by not such a boring article, but um, uh, it was about – it was a – kind of a negative article about um, autonomous autonomous vehicles needing um, a lot of computer power. Oh, so not being very, um, ener- you know, uh, energy efficient. That's in that interesting because you don't think of that, you know, the processing power of, um, of, you know, you think of computers almost as like no energy. You know? <laughs> so right, right, right. Yeah. Exactly. So, yeah. and then there's also this whole, uh, Bitcoin thing and you know mm-hmm. uh, whatever uh, crypto, uh-huh. but um, but anyway, so uh, the title which comes from that article is called "Reduce Interferences." Finally, some snowfall, barely three inches, enough to slap on skis, loop around the the yard. Today, sunshine and warmer temperatures. The tricky mix of waiting for the snow to soften after the overnight freeze before the snow disappears. Laundry, poetry, work all take second tier. As it is on days like this, I kick and glide. I'm only for skis. Very cool. Thanks for sharing that. A uh, happy poem. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thanks, All right. Carla. Take care, everyone. Yeah, yep. take care. Thank you. Yeah, very interesting poem. And that reminds, I mean, the, nowhere is it more evident, uh, the warming, than here. Because we, um, we've had like five inches of rain, or maybe even more, maybe like six or seven inches of rain just in the last month. And, um, and that would be six or seven feet of snow <laughs> if it was uh, 1910. But it's uh, 2020, and uh, it's all just rain. Let's go next to Mike Bales. Good evening. Um, I hey, like Mike. people talking about the business of of writing. It's it's hard for me to find places to submit to, or sometimes I'm dying to send a short story and a name of a magazine pops up, then I go to its website and not accepting s- submissions till June. Oh, I've yeah. got to have like a whole <laughs> bulletin board, I think, to write all these dates down to remind me. Yeah, um, maybe we should, if anybody has any suggestions as you come on the open lines for, for how to go about organizing and submitting, I think it'd be a useful put, thing. Yeah. I put one poem in a s- spreadsheet. I'm trying to do that. And 
put to Smith. Now I've got to find a poem. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So I, tell us about what I've you got, got a lot of poems, a lot, a lot of files of poems, a lot of poems and folders and stories. Yeah, I bet um, you. Do. Yeah. So what do you got today, though? At the Waveland, I'm going to do the Poets Respond version. It's slightly different than the other version. Okay. Um, for me, the article I read wasn't great because I hate eggs. But I wrote because I love Moine, because that's where I wanted to live after I graduated from college. It's called At the Waveland. Okay. People are lining up along University Avenue at the Waveland for eggs. But it's the, the love they seek, conversations and flirtation with the waitress in the stained gold uniform. They talk with her as if she's a wife, a girlfriend, a mother, a friend, and she gives advice. But the real conversation is of the eggs as they pop and sizzle. And the owner says his sides of hash browns are the best in the world. Old newspaper clippings and scribble notes on a large bulletin board bear a history of sorts, seen by workers at the tire plant, the Drake University students, the social workers running late for appointments, the Hollywood star, and poets who dream, all on the way to somewhere else, but all family and friends. And love of the Waveland, and love of the Waveland always remains in their hearts, yet they know there's always a price to pay. The cost of eggs and living has increased, as has the weight of living borne by everyone. Somewhere a woman cries after she found out her lover is married, the one she met after a painful divorce, and how it's time to start her life over again. And somewhere a man on the sidewalk talks to himself, and his questions are never answered. But loyal patrons always return for a slice of conversation as the city awakens another day. Yeah, excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that, sharing that Mike. Um... Yeah, okay, the thanks. egg situation is serious out there. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Thanks. Yeah, Mike Bales with uh, um, At the Waveland. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Mike, let's go next to a first-time uh, caller. It's um, Deidre Domenesco, right? Did I, I, did I get that close? Dimanchesco. <laughs> Dimanchesco. Uh, no, so no. <laughs> That's fine, though. Thanks. thanks so much for joining us. So where are you calling from? Um, well, I'm calling from um, Lexington, Massachusetts. Uh-huh. I, I actually live in Switzerland. And so normally I can't join because of the time difference, but I'm here for a few weeks visiting family and yeah, taking the opportunity to join live. Ah, very so, cool. I'm so glad you can. So uh, what do you want to share with us tonight? Um, so I did the prompt poem and um I had a lot of fun with it. Well, first of all, I, I really had a hard time finding a boring news article. <laughs> that was a real challenge. So I actually went to a um, the Swiss news because the Swiss news can be really boring. Uh-huh. And um, so I picked an article called Lufthansa officially a candidate to buy shares of ITA. So I just found that really boring. Yeah, I find that boring um, too. But then, <laughs> but then just had so much fun on where the prompt took me. So the title is, according to the instructions of the prompt, a phrase from the article. Mm-hmm. It's called The Ashes of Alitalia. What is there to do when you are stuck on the runway? How can you land when you can't take off? Change your name? find a new identity, maybe even marry 
or just abort your dreams of lazy holidays on the Tuscan coast, toes sinking in the warm sand and sipping Sangiovese with your sweetheart. Alitalia, Pan Am, TWA, Swiss Air, Sabina, Midway, Malev, Mexicana, Monarch, vanished, swallowed up, burnt to the ground. Today, a giant will take out the glue, fix another broken wing, and paint it blue. Oh, that was excellent. I love that ending. Thanks so much for sharing Thank that. You. Um, sure. Are you going to be uh, in town next week? Yeah, I'm going to try and come next week. Excellent. Great. Well, I'm so glad you could do it. I wish I could do a different time. My, my, I wish I was like on the East Coast and that would you know, make it better for everybody. But oh, well. Yeah, yeah. well, I love listening to the podcast. So it's excellent. always fun to Yeah, to well, so glad you could join us and uh, looking forward to seeing you next week, too. Yeah, thanks a lot. Thank you. Yeah, that was um, Deidre Domenchesco with um, The Ashes of Italia. And uh, let's go next to Nate Jacob. Hey, Tim. Hey, Nate. How are you doing this evening? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot. Hey, that was a great show. Thanks. Uh, loved it all, especially Ron Kirchie. He's hilarious. <laughs> he definitely is. Were you a fan before? Are you a long-time yeah. Kirchie fan? Yeah. Good guy. <laughs> uh, I uh, failed at the prompt, and then I failed at the Poets Respond, and oh, I no. combined those. Oh, the combined failure. Into the prime failure of my life. <laughs> Excellent. Oh, wow. Look at that. He's not even joking. That's what it's called. <laughs> and I'm, I'm here to share that. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, I tried to finish it up this afternoon, and not quite there. We'll share it anyways. Okay. Looking forward to it. Thanks. All right. It's based on an article, by the way, about uh, Earth's oldest uh, person having passed away last week, uh, a French nun at the age of 118. It, it mentions that. Uh, Paper-lined seating in the prime of my life. Doc looks at me through the frame of her glasses, asks me if I'm being serious about my question. I shift, crinkle the paper-lined bench I'm sitting on, and adjust my smile to match the new tone in the room. So I shouldn't be worried about my memory quite yet. She says everything looks perfectly normal, and then in comes the worst phrase she has repeated annually for the last five or six years, for a man your age. The paper lining crinkles again. I'm really not old enough for you to use that phrase every time I see you. From the audible clenching of my reactionary keister, she knows her response bothers me to no end. I swear she has to stifle a laugh, a bent finger to upper lip, as if to show herself pensive, not entertained. Turning 50 never bothered me. It was a fine number, but 51 had burrowed itself deep, had shortened my fuse, all because I had assumed it was a prime number. As if it mattered, I dragged myself by my own scruff into the closing of my year, somehow not realizing that 51 is three times 17, that I had nothing about which to be bothered for another two years. 53 will prove a challenge, I am sure. And yet, Sister Andre died last week, Earth's oldest human, at 118 years. A nun, a Frenchwoman, a saint. How many of her prime years did she spend counting, calculating, and mourning her metered advance? I imagine she didn't. She was wise. She was better oriented in space to allow time its smooth passage. Though who really knows? Maybe after living through 30 prime-numbered ages herself, 
She had wisely left behind the sadness, ignored her own doctors, and had simply been happy for a woman her age. Oh, that's great. Paper lined seating in the prime of my life. Reminds me of the last time I went to the doctor. I had a knee problem. I was like, Doc, you know, my knee hurts. Is there anything I can do? Or like, what's going on? He's like, yep, that's going to happen. I was like, don't you have any advice or anything you can do for me? He's like, you should get some life insurance because it's about to go way up. <laughs> I was like, thanks a lot, Doc. Thanks That's a lot. the worst. I thanks know. for nothing. Yeah, well, right. I haven't been to the doctor in like uh, the last four years since. So um, I don't know. He didn't yeah, a repeat customer. <laughs> this is totally fictional. I never go to the doctor either. But <laughs> yeah. There you go. Awesome. Take care. Thanks a lot, Nate. Always thanks a, a lot. Yep. You too. Bye. It was Nate Jacob with uh, paper line seating in the prime of my life. Uh, Phil Stern is next. Hello. Hey, Phil. Great to see you. How are you doing tonight? Okay. Um, first, I'd like to say that you guys are all babies. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I just turned 95, so... Oh, congratulations. Happy birthday, Phil. Thank you. And uh, do you want to public, you know, have an issue on all the poets... I started writing seriously at 88. Uh, so. I think you're going to cut off uh, cut off Dick there <laughs> if we put it up that high. <laughs> That's I mean, great. I read early, but the serious, writing uh -huh. serious. What was it that made you, because I assume you um, retired before then. What, what made you turn to poetry at that age? Well, I had always been, you know, interested in writing. I taught English uh, for 50 years at the college level. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I had been a songwriter when I was younger. I had been 44 songs oh, wow. published. Uh -huh. And um, a few, I had a poem published in the Atlantic, you know, but this was like another lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know, actually, I'm, I'm taking it back. I think if you had a poem published in the Atlantic, you don't qualify as a late life poet. If you were, a, you know, if you did it when you that were- was the only, That was my only publication, though. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't had one. I'd love to have one in the Atlantic, but I do not. <laughs> so that's really cool. Well, what do you have to share for us today, uh, Phil? Okay. Uh, I haven't uh, been around, as you might have noticed, for a while. This poem will say why. You'll okay. see why. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. I, uh, it's called Phone in the Fridge. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. I'm way older than you. You don't know the day. You ask the same questions over and over. You're confused by the storyline on TV. You put the remote somewhere different every time. You put your phone in the fridge. It's hard to find food you will eat. You say things over and over. I set up three pill boxes so you won't forget to take your meds or take the wrong ones at the wrong time. Sometimes you call me names but you recognize you are harsh with friends. You say, I wish I were dead. I can't live this way. But if your meds have worked one night and you've had a decent sleep in the sweet morning, you've reached out to me in our bed and thrown your arm over my side. I must remember, if I cannot reach you, your phone is in the fridge. A uh, beautiful poem. Thanks so much for sharing that, Phil. It a perfectly uh, great timing too for uh, tonight. Like we plan it that way. Excellent. Yeah, and, and uh, phone, phone prompt. <laughs> yeah, for for every reason, it's kind of amazing. And so glad to have you here. Uh, it's been a while, and we've missed you. So glad you're back. Thank you so much, and I appreciate that. 
Yeah. Me yeah. too. I, I miss you guys too. Ah, great. Well, take care, Phil, and I'll see you again soon. All right. Thanks. All right. That was Phil Stern with um, a phone in the fridge, which uh, does the prompt coming up, which I haven't read the full prompt yet, but you'll see uh, is a phone phone poem prompt. And uh, I think we have uh, we have two poets left. Uh, Brent Stoffer is here. Uh, oh, wait, hold on. There we go. There we, there go. we go. Hey, Brent, <laughs> how are you doing tonight? Hey, I'm doing good. I was kind of hoping that I wouldn't have to follow Phil. That was <laughs> <laughs> that was good stuff. Was, yeah, definitely. I was a stopper. Yeah, that was really great. Um, but um, here, uh, um, uh. But here we are. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> here we are. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I've got a prompt poem. Uh-huh. Um, I, I had um, reservations of, about how it would go. Uh, how do you write an interesting poem after finding something uninteresting? But of course, it worked out pretty good. Um, the article I chose was one about Pamela Anderson, mm-hmm. who I'm not very interested in. Um but she's got a memoir uh, coming out, and, uh, and she talks about um, being flashed by Tim Allen on the set of Home Improvement. And um, so the Tim in the title of this poem is not you. Oh, <laughs> thanks for clarifying. <laughs> I, don't, I don't need that, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> um but and, but but also it's revealed in the article um, that she suffered some abuse as a kid, mm. and that reminded me of a friend of mine. So that's where it went. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's hear it. Now, here you go, Tim. Okay. And, and I am not the Tim. Yeah. <laughs> it's not you. You don't have to worry. Um, here you go, Tim. Was all they used to let Pamela say on Home Improvement. My friend Angela was a beautiful kid too. If he'd seen her. Botticelli would have thrown his paint box into the sea. Other grown men in lower Alabama had other ideas. Deep within the shadows of the attic, a crouching man squinted and peered, fantasizing and planning his terrible conquest, that rough theft. After a year of appearances, they let Pamela double her words. So she got to say, here you go, Tim. Have a nice day. Oh wow! I didn't. I, I the weird thing is that 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 article came up as a sidebar of the po- article that I used, so I saw that out of the corner of my eye, kind of. But did she start on Home Improvement? I didn't even realize that. Yeah, yeah. As she had a recurring role, uh-huh. and her only line was a was repeatedly saying, "Here you go, Tim." Oh, wow. Like she worked at a hardware store or something and she would give him the bag and say, here you go, Tim. So she did that for a year. And in the second year, they doubled her lines and she got to say, here you go, Tim. Have a nice day. Wow. What a what a poignant little detail to pick up on. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. It seemed very evocative to Mm -hmm. me. Yeah. Yeah. So. For sure. Great prompt, great, great prompt, as it turns out. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks so much, Brent. Always a pleasure and really interesting poem, too. Great. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate you, everybody. <laughs> Thanks. See you soon. Tim. Yep. Bye. Yeah, that was um, Brent Stoffer with um, Here We Go, Tim. And uh, here's Lucy Chow, um, who's going to close it out for the uh, Zoom for us. 
Oh, Tim. Hi, Lucy. How are you doing tonight? Or today, I should say. Um, I kind of struggled with this week's uh, mm -hmm. prompt because it was really hard to find the quote-unquote boring news article that uh -huh. <laughs> I really find so hard to relate to. But this poem is not exactly a prompt poem. I did not follow the instructions exactly, but it related to a news article and you mentioned um, opinions can get in the way of a poem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in this poem, I um, I was trying to um, stand in the perspective of someone whose opinion that I cannot really relate with. So um, I always find uh, these um, these ways that humans treat non-human animals so heart-wrenching mm -hmm. but in this poem i'm trying to take the perspective of a woman who is also a butcher so so lucy was breaking up because she's in china and um, the connection is rough over there um and sometimes it drops out so i'm going to just read the whole poem for lucy then we'll have it all in um on, in the, on the show okay so this is the butcheress's karma um tonight fireworks blossom like blood from the stabbed aorta of a pig Sparks burst, spiking night with the carmine screams of calcium, brick red of strontium, smoke pools around bare treetops like ghost foliage or amorosis, acrid. Tonight you stand by the bench with your apprentice, another girl whose white, uncalloused hands pin down the 600-pound pink beast. Your left hand presses its snout, your right gripping a glinting knife. You scream, unaffected glee to that gurgling head. You'll never get away. I'm fast, exact, and fierce. Your advance, proud and intrepid as an Olympic fencer, triumphant and unrepentant as Lady Macbeth. You score 300 times tonight for meek womankind. You pocket bloodstained cash so your kids can rejoice to see fairy sticks spit sizzling meteors from their mittened hands. Your murderous mother's heart smolders like charred flakes with remnant retulence floating to the ground. You are a tough woman, not unkind. Why would honest folk abuse animals? You would not do it if pork were not meat. You turn the intestines inside out. You bear the stench so that others can taste blood and curse the ones who draw it. You wear perfume so your polite friends smile genteely and don't flinch. Women must be paid equally as men for the cruel work they do. You insist when it explodes, be it bl blood vessel or Catherine's wheel, you stand right there to let the hot drops burn your hardened body. Your children do not adore their mom as Wonder Woman, but in a cavernous world, butchers get paid and you will be a butcheress, say what the hypocrites may. Maybe in the next life you will have to pay by becoming a pig. Sometimes after putting the, putting the kids to bed, you lean half sitting up praying for your soul that in the next world no one pays anyone to slay anyone else, and juicy tomatoes and meteor shows will be free. Tonight in a city park, white ducks bed down in moonlit stubbles of reeds and a golden retriever distraught by the festive din runs into the woods and is never found by its master. Tomorrow morning, the first of the year of rabbit, you will rise promptly with plenty of heart to praise necessary deaths. In your village, the porcine tribe shall wake knowingly to be dead. You have a conscience as good as anyone, but you don't believe in karma. 
Tonight, fireworks blossom like blood from the stabbed aorta of a pig. Sparks burst, spiking night with the carmine screams of calcium, brick red of strontium. They flare up and are extinguished. The sky doesn't care. So there's a great poem by uh, Lucy Chow. Um, sorry for the mic issues and the broken up issues. I want to make sure that poem got in because it's such a good one. The Butcher's Karma. And uh, Lucy's poems are always great. She's writing from China and um, has excellent, really vivid work. And that's an example of that, too. So many great lines in there. So, um, yeah, so that was uh, the end of the Zoom portion of the show. We'll see. We have a little bit of time. I'll see who else has poems, too. Um, let me see what we have uh, that people sent in that I can share really quick. Let's see. So here's uh, Nivedita Karthik's poem. Maybe like three of these. Here's Nivity to Karthik's poem. Um, and she says of the prompt, um, I've written a prompt-based poem on a science news article. I'm attaching the link to the article here in the body of this email. Um, the title of the poem is based on one major word from the article, psychobiotic. The reason this news story did not call out to me first was because the gut-brain axis is well known in science, but I still read, read through it. Towards the end, the article provides hope that the gut microbiota can be used to treat mental health conditions. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. So it, it turns out that, that boring news articles maybe aren't so boring, which is a theme of the show tonight. Um, let me read this for Nivedita. Here we go. And this is um, Psychobiotics and Mood Swings. You see blue and I see green, not the kind with jealousy, but the kind that makes you sit up and take note of the change in what was once blue. I am not the blue I once was, the blue my gut told me my brain I was, the blue the microbes told my brain I was, the blue I was. I am now the green of calm, the green my gut tells my brain I am, the green the microbes tell my brain I am, the green I am. Will I turn red tomorrow or perhaps yellow? Only the microbes can tell, for they have been found, they have been around a lot longer than either you or me, and will probably always be a part of you and me and my moods and yours and ours. Hey, great poem. Really cool story, too. That was Nivity DeCarthic with Psychobiotics and Mood Swings. Um, let's see what else we've got. Here is uh, Katie Dozier's prompt poem. She says, prompted by an article with the same name, which appeared in the Interior Journal located in Stanford, Kentucky. Um, and here is, signs of abandoned field sites are there for the trained eye. And the headline by Steve Wark of the Interior Journal. Let's take a look at this. Here we go. Signs of abandoned field sites are there for the trained eye. With no one left to plow the field, the field unplowed itself. First the grass stood up, green trumpets heralding the sky, wildflowers dotted what was now a meadow filled with multicolored eyes. Far from my decay, seeds mapped out their stowaways, grasping bits of deer fur as if steadfast ships. Pine trees shot arrows up to pierce the sky, a colander of clouds. And then the hardwoods barreled higher still, as if someone's wood grain shoulders have rooted long ago, nature's testament to will. The bark of dogwoods, red maple leaves set aflame by sunsets, a field that was once just wheat, where I plucked the seed heads for bread. But you waited in the woodland all along for me instead. A cool internal rhyme there at the end. That is Katie Dozier, also known as KHD. And uh, I should say that we're doing a, um, a space over on Twitter, 
with Katie once every Thursday at uh, noon for about an hour. Um, and if you're not familiar with Twitter spaces, um, it's kind of like a group phone call. It's really fun. So uh, find us on Twitter over there um, at my handle at Timothy Green or at Katie underscore Dozier. And uh, this week's topic is um, um, what is the definition of poetry that we're discussing? So gather around. I know Dick Westheimer joins us. Carlos Schwartz is there. It's a lot of fun to talk about stuff in a kind of casual way. That is uh, the poetry space over on Twitter uh, with Katie Dozier. That was, that was her who set it up. Um, so thanks, Katie, for that. And thanks for the poem. Um, and the other, let's see. We have too many to get through, everybody. And uh, I wish, let's see, I wish I could get to everybody. Let's do Carlton Johnson. Um, his article or his poem is based on this. Yeah, it's getting late. I can only do one more. I'm sorry. We can, if you call in next week, or I'll try to get some more poems next week. Um, but this is the article that um, Carlton Johnson pulls up. It is, um, and I can't really make it. Let's see if I can make it small enough to read it. Um, Hope remains to find actor Julian Sands missing on treacherous California mountain one week. Oh, that's really interesting. So this, uh, he's lost on Mount Baldy, um, which I, I hadn't heard about this at all. My mom told me about it on the phone yesterday. Um, uh, I didn't even know, he should know who the actor was, but um, apparently this actor is up on Mount Baldy, which is like, I don't know, five miles just up the mountain from me. And it's terrifying. thought. Remember I said that the... Uh, if we were just a little higher, it would be like five feet of snow or seven feet of snow. Well, they're higher. It is five or seven feet of snow up there. I don't know how much it says, but um, there's been a lot of snow, and, and people die up there every year, like thinking that, you know, it's not as dangerous as it is. It's real, uh, real dangerous nature out there. So anyway, that is the topic for Carlton Johnson's poem. And um, let's see if I can find the poem again. Yeah, so let me paste this in the Word doc really quick. This is Carlton Johnson's poem, Missing Sands. A poetry respond poem, obviously, about that current event. Oops. Hang on one second. Got to redo it. This one. There we go. Missing Sands. I woke this morning to the view of lime green palms and oak, a common view from my neck of the woods. However, I consider my own walking, scuffing my feet as I walk, creating imbalances and, and thoughts of needing an extra handhold to be more steadfast. When I was young, I would go on hikes with my Boy Scout troop, number nine, and all was fine. And so, when I read this past week of Julian Sands, an accomplished hiker lost on a path to Mount Baldy and the San Gabriel Mountains, I was struck, like a lone stone kicked up by the wind or rain. My life is an adventure, even if I no longer go on day-long hiking trips. Each day, there may be a slip, but there is always a chance for a fall. But not down a gorge or ravine, as I hope has not befallen sands. The poem is based on part of the story. So that is the uh, poem, Missing Sands, from Carlton Johnson. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carlton. And I, I meant to look up more about that, and I forgot. Um, it is, like, right here. Like, you see, you look, go out the window and you see Mount, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine someone's up there. So so pray for, for Julian Sands. Hope he's found, and hope he's somehow found a way to stay warm this last week, I guess. All right, so that is going to wrap up the show. We're, we're at the two-and-a-half-hour mark. Um, so thanks, everybody, for shared poems and uh, who, who joined us today. It's been a great episode from uh, through Ahe Hines and, and Ron Kirchie, and then the open lines have been great, too. Um, here's the Saiku for this week to close out the show, and it's based on this article from um, UCLA, another place right down the street from me. I guess it's, it's more like 40 miles away, but... Um, uh, when migrating birds go astray, disturbances in magnetic fields may be partly to blame. And so they looked at the um, 
the magnetic field during times when birds are getting lost, basically, and found that um, there's a certain pattern to it that has to do with the solar flares and the way the sun minimizes the the, um, the geomagnetic field. And so um, birds are more likely to go astray, um, especially as the um, the um, magnetic field weakens in the Earth and, and the sun has more influence over it. Um, and so, so birds actually see magnetic field lines. They have magnetoreceptors in their eyes, which I did not know. So anyway, very interesting article from, um, from UCLA, When Migrating Birds Go Astray, um, the mag- disturbances in magnetic field may be to blame. And here is the uh, Saiku inspired by that news story. Um, winter geese knowing more or less than me. Winter geese, knowing more or less than me. That is the Saiku for this week, and that is the show for this week. Next week's prompt, we already talked about this, but it's going to be um, write a poem about a phone call you wouldn't actually make. So it's based on these uh, three, I think, phone call poems in um, A.E. Hines' book, Any Dumb Animal. Um, there are three leading off each section of the book. Um, but what we want to do is imagine a phone call to somebody you wouldn't actually call. So for me, I mean, for me and A.E. Hines, the, uh, my father is an obvious choice, uh, but there are many things you can think of. Uh, you wouldn't really call uh, Donald Trump, maybe. You wouldn't really call, um, I don't know, uh, Tom Brady or some celebrity. You wouldn't really call. Who knows? Whoever you might want to make a phone call to that you wouldn't actually make, write a poem about that. Imagine what the phone call would be. Maybe make a dialogue. Maybe tell it in a different way. But that is the prompt for this week, inspired by A.E. Hines' book, Any Dumb Animal. And uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be... Um, Nacelle Davis. So Nacelle is another um, L.A. poet uh, who's sort of a legend around here. She runs the Poetry Circus, which is a really fun thing at Griffith Park at the gazebo, at the carousel there where they do poetry and it's like an art fair. She does so many creative, unusual things that poets don't usually do, getting poetry out in the public. Um, her most recent book is The Walled Wife for Red Hen Press. She's author of several. She also does a whole bunch of things online, video series and things like that. She's a poet who really thinks outside the box and thinks of poetry as more... Um, than more art than just poetry. Um, and so it's really interesting to talk about all the ways she does that. That'll be next week's Rattlecast guest on 179. And uh, with a prompt to write a poem about a phone call you wouldn't actually make. Uh, that'll be Rattlecast on 179, Monday, January 30th. Did I make the date right? Yeah, Monday, January 30th. The regular time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great week in the meantime, and I will talk to you later. Good night.